Welcome to the 250, your weekly slash fortnightly movie podcast with the IMTV's top 250 movies of all time. I'm Darren. And I'm Andrew. And today we're going to talk about James Cameron's 1991 blockbuster spectacle, Terminator 2, Judgment Day. Yeah. So yes, Terminator 2 was a kind of, was a massive event film. It was released in 1991 and oddly enough, like I remember very little. I was born in 1986, so... So it would have been, what, four or five years old at the time when but it came out. But you look so young. I know. How do I keep my face so fresh? It's because it's actually a biological construct over a endoskeleton. But don't tell anybody. I remember, I actually remember Terminator 2 being a huge thing in the early 90s. Like, I remember, I don't remember seeing it, but I always remember having seen it, if that makes sense. Like, I can't remember the first time I saw it, but I can't remember a time where I hadn't oh. seen it. Cause yeah, I, I I I was never even 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 though even though this is very much a kids movie, the the I I, well, I don't more rated. Yeah, but like there there was a lot of um there was a lot a lot of marketing around kids. Like there was arcade games where it's it's um the first five minutes of the movie you see these um battles between the machines and and men, and there was there was. It was one of those arcade games where you have a gun and where you, uh, where you fire your machine gun and then there's a little button on the right for when you like fire your explosive um, when when you reach the boss I guess so that was that was that was the way I was exposed to it it, it was like um, they do that with sequels this is like um, like Robocop 2 and 3. <laughs> Where, because where, everything must be boiled down. Yeah, where 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 they introduce um, uh, child characters and and they kind of market it with a lot of uh, toys and uh, that sort of thing. Yeah, well, I mean, video games. But uh, definitely, and I mean, it is it was a massive event, and it is in some ways it is it is very much like a a child focused movie because even though it was R rated, and even though it was uh, over here in the UK in the UK and Ireland, it was fifteens. I remember seeing it well before. Yeah, I, I wouldn't have been allowed to see it. You wouldn't have been allowed to see it? No, not really. Did your parents sort of adhere to that, the, that sort of ratings? Pretty much. I used to think it was, it was, it was, uh, uh, I remember I, I, w- I would be over at other houses and, and there would be, be these kids watching um, these um, movies that weren't um, appropriate. Yeah, yeah, and and honestly, I know this is strange, but I I would kind of look down my noses at them. I would I would think how how coarse, how vulgar these children must be. Yeah, yeah. This isn't. I would disagree with that very very strongly. I think it's. Well, in- maybe I was judging their parents. Yes. It's, it's strange because now I think if I were to have a kid, I, I, I would have a very sort of liberal um, attitude towards what they. Can yeah, say. yeah, it would be on a like case by case basis. That's it exactly. And you would you like so long as I think if you're leaving a child to watch something yeah. on their own, that's like more of a problem. Yeah, no, I think that um, it's it's. Or one, if you're not giving any thought to what you're exposing them to. and what they're consuming, or you're not asking them to question what they're consuming as well. Like I mean, yeah. I, I would argue that, like, my experience was watching over-18s movies with my granddad at, from the age of, like, eight or nine. And that didn't screw me up at all. But um, I think that one of the key things is, yes, having that conversation with kids afterwards and sort of, like, asking what the movie was about rather than it just being a collection of cool images that sort of soak into the brain. Uh, they're, they're driving... They're driving to the fireworks factory. Yeah. <laughs> Why can't they get there already? When are they going to talk about Terminator Two? I like this stuff. I like. I actually, I think this is an interesting sort of discussion to have. Like, I like. I like talking about how people experience movies and stuff like that. And I think that 
you know, this is sort of a springboard here in that, like, you don't think of Terminator 2 as an R-rated film. No. And you don't think of it as an over-15s film. Like, I, if you'd asked me, I almost would have said it was a PG film. Until I think about the sequences. Until I think, yeah, that blade went through that guy's eye. Or, yeah, that blade went through that guy's mouth. Until I think of those sequences, I'm like, yeah, this is a perfectly acceptable PG-13 film. Yeah, it 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 really does seem like a like um like like a what do you call it PG thirteen? I always think twelve. Is 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 isn't that the I classification think 12 is, we have here? Is Ireland is twelve A? Yes, yeah, which yeah. is you can watch it under the age of twelve if you've got an adult with you. In the states, it's it's PG thirteen and it's the same. Where do we talk in American um, terms? Yeah. Well, when you say we, you mean I, right? Yeah. Because you you think of twelve A, I think of PG thirteen. Yeah. No, I, I NC seventeen, which is the uh, death rather now. than like fifteen yeah. A, yeah, um, or 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 uh, yeah. Well, this is this is the thing. Like, I mean, I do think that part of this is down to the fact that I, I tend to absorb a lot of American culture talked about by a lot of American writers, a lot of American sort of pop culture websites. So, like, I I find out that oh my god, the new Wolverine's going to be R rated rather than the new Wolverine's going to be fifteens. Right. And so I sort of contextualize it in that terms. Like, okay. Yeah, it, it was strange that that um, that Logan was was fifteen rather than eighteen for me. I think that uh, I think that the Irish censorship board is is generally your well, it's not a censorship board; it's a classification board, and that's a very important distinction, actually. Yeah, but um, I know. Um, I actually I had dinner with the the head of it a, little, a couple of years ago, and he was very adamant that that was the way you put it. That was the worst mistake you could make was describing it as the Irish Film Censorship Office. Yeah. And he's right. He's in, he was entirely correct. They, they like throughout the years, they've they they haven't really banned hardly any movies at all. Yeah, I mean, the Life of Brian is probably the the one that I that people that, think of, and that, that was in nineteen seventy. That wasn't banned either. It wasn't banned. It was it just, was just not shown. that it wasn't shown because the, the people didn't want to show it. Oh, okay, I did not know that. That's they, pretty amazing. But yeah, we, our our censorship or classification board is very very proud of its sort of liberal attitudes. Like, and I think that. Like, it, it is actually relatively progressive in terms of, uh, when compared to, say, the American model or even the British model. Like, we're a lot more tolerant of sexuality, for example. And we're a lot more understanding of the target audience for a film. So, like, we'll understand that stuff Cursing like, as well. Yeah, which is... Well, cursing is a very American thing, I think. Americans are... American rating systems are very sensitive to swear words. It's such... I think we've spoken about it before on the podcast, about the... the they're, because they're not very sensitive about violence no. at all. No. Um, like, you get the sense that, that the re- the problem with Terminator 2 was the fact that they say words like dickwad, that more than the fact that they stick knives to people's heads. Very innocuous uh, curse words in this movie. Oh, yeah, definitely. But we'll talk about that when we get to John Connor and uh, his sort of... the 90s-ness of John Connor. But so I I remembered seeing Terminator Two. I don't. I actually didn't remember seeing Terminator. I can't remember a time when I hadn't seen it. You experienced it through the video game. When did you see the film for the first time? Probably probably when I when I, when I, when I was um, old enough to see it. I don't know. Or maybe 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 a little earlier. Uh-huh. I, I was probably I was probably like twelve or thirteen. Here's one for you. Actually, did you see Terminator the Terminator before you saw Terminator Two? I'm not sure. I um no I don't. I don't think I had. No. I, I I feel like I watched Terminator 2 thinking I'd seen Terminator and probably had, but remembered it much differently. When I watched Terminator, I was surprised by how old it was. Yeah. Like, you, 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 you watch it and you're like, oh, this is like a proper old movie. But it's also it's also a much cheaper movie than Terminator yeah. 2. Which yeah. I think it, was... doesn't, it doesn't feel like... Ter- um, 
I think you, like, you see Terminator and then you see Terminator 2 and you expect that, like, each of them has the same sort of, like, feel and production. Yeah. And then you go back and watch Terminator and realise, oh, no. This was a completely different film. Yeah. Because that was a bit of a surprise because I actually, I'm pretty sure I saw Terminator, because I remember, I don't remember watching Terminator 2, but I do remember watching Terminator and being surprised at how different it was from Terminator 2. Yeah. Like, I remember being surprised at how, I don't want to say cheap it looked, but how sort of, how much like a B-movie it looked. It looked very much like something that had been shot, like, guerrilla style, lots of shots at night. Uh, well, it would have been crazy if the amount of money yeah. <laughs> that went to Terminator 2 had went to... to the first Terminator. Yeah. With sort of James Cameron. Hey, you're the dude who made Piranha 2. Here's $100 million, go make a movie. Yeah. Because it is, because the budget difference is something like 15 times. Yeah. So he got to make Terminator 2 for 15 times the budget that he had for the original Terminator. And it shows. Yeah. Like, yeah. there's there's absolutely no way. And I, I mean... I mean, the craft services... Yeah, that budget just runs up and up and up. Yeah. Um, the tank top budget, the sunglass budget, which nobody really thinks about on these films. But, you no. know, let's face it, stunts are, are murder on those things. But... Uh, yeah, no, I, I absolutely loved it. And I actually have a very fond memory of Terminator 2. I think of it as, for me, it's a, it's like a formative blockbuster. It's like it's a film that sort of codified a lot of what I expected from blockbuster cinema. And it would have arrived at right, just the right time when I was about four or five to say, look, this is what I expect my summer blockbuster films to be like. What? Because we talked... When you were four or five? Oh, yeah. The, you, 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 were, you, were, you, were, you were watching this or... Well, presumably, because I don't remember. Oh, I, I, remember, can't remember. I remember, like, like, thinking about this, um, but, like, just, just, just because it was in arcade games. But so, so was, so was that Michael Jackson movie, what was it called, Moonwalker? Moonwalker with Joe Pesci. Yeah, yeah, and, and I'm, I'm pretty sure that had, it, it had, Neo. it probably had as much impact on me <laughs> as, as Terminator 2, be, be, because it was, because it was in a, an arcade game. game. See, this is the thing. I this is probably a difference between you and I. I I grew up in Ghana and West Africa, and those four years there. So like, I didn't really have arcades and stuff. My my big memory. My do you know what's really sad about my my cinematic history? My first memory of going to the cinema to see a film was Richie Rich starring with Coney Culkin, and I think I was at the time about six. That was quite late. Yeah, yeah. I like. I I feel. I feel like. Um... I remember watching The Little Mermaid many, many times. I think I think I think I saw. Um, I used to go to the cinema and they had this um, cardboard cutout of King Ralph for ages, for like a very long time. I feel. I uh, keep in mind we, we went to different cinemas, so I can't confirm or deny that. No, no, because it looked like you were hanging. Well, yeah, Richie Rich. That seems seems like it seems like you were older than six or seven watching that. I've, 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 um, do we, is this worth going to the fact machine for? To the fact machine! Oh, it was. It was 1994. Yeah, so you would have been, you would have been seven or, or, or yeah, right? I suppose that's not much difference, but that's no. quite old. For, to remember my first trip. Yeah. But my, my point is that I remember, like, I saw, I remember seeing Richie Rich the first time I went to the cinema, but well, I by remember. By the way, it was, it was out in 1994. Did we say that? It was out in 1994. Yeah. Uh, but I, I, like, I remember having seen uh, Terminator 2 before that. Like, it was a formative experience for me. Like, it was like... When we talk about movies like Jaws and Star Wars, as films that sort of said, this is what a blockbuster film should be like. Establishing the genre, establishing the tone. Yeah. But I think for an entire 
and I, I, I don't, I, I'm going to generalize from my own experiences here, but I think that for an entire generation, watching Terminator 2 was a similar thing. It's like, okay, well, this is what a summer event movie looks like. This is what a summer event movie feels like. And I think, I think that, like, when I think of Terminator 2, I, I think of that, and I think its influence is, is huge. Like, I don't, I think without Terminator 2, you wouldn't have got, say, Independence Day. But I mean, even even more recently, you wouldn't got say the the films like The Dark Knight or even the Marvel Cinematic Universe. I don't know if you can say. I, 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 I don't I don't know how I feel about the legacy of this movie because right, well, it's a big special effects blockbuster that's also kind of a little bit. Uh, go for it, Andrew. A little bit dumb, a little bit shallow. Uh, Oh, okay. Yeah, I, I, I mean, um, very kind of like um, marketed towards uh, kids primarily. Um, I'd I say it's like a very the, simple movie. Yeah, I mean, the likes of Jaws was 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 much more adult. Yeah, 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 and kind of sophisticated. And I, and it like back then they made movies um, primarily for people who could pay to see them. Yeah. Um, well, I mean, there's the argument that, like, The Godfather was both the, like, it won Best Picture and it was the biggest earning film of the year. Which right. Is, which is astounding to think that there was a time when you could be the most financially successful film of the year and By be something like The like Godfather. A sophisticated movie about gro- uh, grown-ups. And grown-ups it, acting like grown-ups. Yeah. Yeah. Which, which, is, which is, is remarkable. I think that sort of shift kind of came with, with blockbuster cinema. Talking like grown-ups. Yeah, acting like grown-ups. Like, yeah. Uh, and not necessarily just filling the screen with uh, explosions and, like, counting on, like, the shortest possible attention span. Uh, cowabunga. Dude. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I feel like we're being really harsh on, on Terminator 2. Because I, I, cause, cause this is a movie where, where a child is teaching... Um, a killer robot how to be cool. Yeah. Who's, uh, like... It, he he looks like an adult, but he's been taught to 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 talk like a a, a teenager. Yeah, it's hasta la vista, and all and all these sort of these almost like pre-internet mimetic sound bites. Yeah, because I mean, you would hear "I'll be back," and you'd hear like, uh, well, obviously "I'll be back" is from the first one, but you'd hear like "hasta la vista, baby," and all this sort of stuff repeated by people because it it is a nice short sound bite, and I think there's there is an argument that part of the success of Terminator Two is that it can in some ways be simplified and broken down into these like it can be quoted for example in a way that's you know when you when you quote the godfather you have to go full al pacino yeah you know when you quote terminator 2 all you have to do is just say hasta la vista baby no 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 you have to you have to go full Arnold schwarzenegger i don't know i think if you say hasta la vista baby like that's enough there's no no excuse for using the phrase hasta la vista maybe for you and <laughs> my shallow life yeah, um, the, 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 you, 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 you can't, you, no. I can't fathom a world where somebody would say has to Oh, by the way, Darren, you, you need, you need to come very strong on your pro uh, Terminator 2 um, opinions, because other, otherwise this won't work. <laughs> <laughs> if, 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 if I'm, if I'm saying, if, if I'm, if I'm being um, in even slightly negative about Terminator 2, the audience needs you to champion to slap their, you down, yeah, like yeah. the yeah, like the dickwad you are. Yeah. All right then. So here's a question. Then, having talked about that and having what sort is of like, dickwads, I think that's for a topic for another podcast, Andrew. Um, <laughs> we'll we'll talk about it afterwards. But um, so having sort of outlined our positions, which is that I'm I'm very fond of it. I think it's massively influential. I think it was very formative for me. 
and you being somewhat more cynical about its legacy and its influence and, and sort of certain choices that were made during the production. Do you think, first of all, do you think it belongs in the end to these top tier cooking movies of all time? I can understand why it is. I think along with Aliens, it's um, it's very beloved of, 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 of people of a certain age who... Um, who had this excitement um, for for a blockbuster for a blockbuster um, uh, while while in their childhood, and I think it it it's similar as well to Star Wars and the kind of uh, enthusiasm that 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 people have for those movies. Now, none of those movies particularly mean much to me. I I think. I mean, I, I think, think you've gone further and you've argued that they're not necessarily good movies of themselves. Oh, uh, well, no, no. I, 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 I think, I think I'm, I think I'm looking at these through, through... Adult eyes? Yeah, but, but also I think when I was a child, I think I wanted to sort of be a grown-up in some ways. Like, I, I, I wanted to kind of, like, watch... Lawrence Olivier's Hamlet <laughs> and, and 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 stuff like that, and try to kind of like put on airs and 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 I that mean, sort of thing. I would agree with that I watched the Coen Brothers when I was when I was growing up as a kid. Yeah, and and those would have been a very idiosyncratic, I think, in some ways, adult filmmakers. Yeah, um, but I think at the same time, I could watch Terminator Two, and I could appreciate it just as a cinematic joyride. But I, I think you are entirely correct in terms of its position. In the list, and we, we talked about this when we when we selected it last week after watching 2001 A Space Odyssey, which is somewhere in the 90s, and Terminator 2 is in the 40s. Like, it's in the top 50 movies of all time as voted for by IMDb users, and I think there's a definite sort of bias at work there, because we've talked about the list sort of skewing before to a perspective that is, say, male, that yeah. is white, and that is... Came of age in the nineties, nostalgic, yeah. yeah. But also the came of age in the nineties. Like it's it's a list that heavily preferences, say, the work of of Quentin Tarantino, for example. Yeah, yeah. Uh, because that's the movie that people like us would have watched when we were growing up. Like, yeah. And and I think that there's an element of that with the inflated opinion of Terminator Two because it ranks higher than say the original Terminator, for example. Yeah, I I think we've talked before about how there's no there's no uh, clueless, no mean girls. Um, no, yeah. none, none, none of these movies that were formative for, for for women our age, for example. Yeah, um, like it is, and it definitely. I mean, and I, that are also great movies. Oh yeah, definitely. And I think actually, because I've been doing a bunch, I've been watching some stuff. I've been watching new movies that have been coming out on IMDb, and stuff like the politicized voting of stuff like, say, Amy Schumer Snatched, which is, to be fair, not a good film, but it's also better than a three point three on the scale. Because you have all these angry young internet-centric men coming in and giving it one star, right? Because they're the demographic that dominate the list to a certain extent, and I do think that Terminator Two placing so highly is in some ways a reflection of that. And I mean, I'm willing to put a mea culpa here and say I love Terminator Two. Oh, yeah. I am one of those guys, probably, but like, I do think the, that it is inflated. Yeah. the 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 thing is that um, the stuff I love about. Uh, uh, about Terminator Two are are the are the 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 sequences, you yeah. know, like 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 the um... the chase to the Los Angeles River. Bank, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Are that the climax, which takes place at spoiler? You know, that's yeah, stuff. yeah, yeah. And I do. The I think those are memorable. Factory. The spoiler. Fa- they literally get to the spoiler <laughs> factory at the end. Uh, but I do think that yeah, no, and I I would argue that is that is a fair summary of the movie. Like, but I do. I do think... been spoiled. <laughs> But I do think that uh, 
I think that I think the best impressions are the worst impressions. Yeah. By the way. Yeah. Well, I mean, if you if you wanted a good get, out. get to the chapa. But I think if you wanted to see if you wanted to listen to a good Arnold Schwarzenegger impression, you just watched an Arnold Schwarzenegger movie, right? But um, that's my logic, and I'm sticking to it. But I do think, like, in the defense of Terminator Two, and I'm doing this because you asked me to, Andrew. Okay. Yeah. I, this is why do I make you hurt, Andrew? I think that. The simplicity of the story and the simplicity of the characters and the simplicity of the arcs and the simplicity of the dynamics are all entirely intentional. Like, they're very much in keeping with... Ha- we'll talk about Cameron's writing because we have very strong opinions about that in the spoilers. Yeah, zone. yeah. But I do I think, think... anyone who's listened to Aliens 2 will know how I feel about that. But I think that there is an argument made that the simplicity is a feature rather than a bug. Like, that the idea that the characters are so archetypal makes them easier to understand. But it also lends the movie an almost timeless quality. Like, you can understand... Like, it's a movie about a killer robot sent from the future who's been reprogrammed to protect the man who was originally programmed to kill from a shape-shifting liquid uh, alien Terminator who's, uh, you know, who's hunting them down. And it's like, no, 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 no. The dynamics are actually really simple. It's about a little boy who finds a father who is also mentally a child and the bond that they create with one another. And it's like, yes, that's very simple and it's very basic and it's not particularly complicated. But I think a lot of the emotional resonance of Terminator 2 comes from the simplicity of those dynamics and those characters, no? Well, that's, that's very, uh, very touching, Dan. I, I, I know now why you, you cry. cry. <laughs> why, why, why? I'm not even sure what accent that is. Um, <laughs> no, I'm really going for it. You really are. You really yeah, are. yeah. Um, I don't know why he sounds like Kermit doing a uh, doing an impression of uh, one of the things I like about this is that people listening to this will have to find it very difficult to tell who's doing which bad impression. <laughs> so Bill, these are all you, Bill Bill Hader, who does very good impressions. Oh, Bill he, Hader's he, amazing. He does a very subtle and accurate um, Arnold Schwarzenegger because he worked as a, a, a as a PA. To Arnold Schwarzenegger. Oh, I didn't yeah, know that. Yeah, when 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 Arnie was doing uh, what what was it called? Collateral damage, I think. Really? Yeah. That yeah. recently. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, you kind of think of Bill Hader as somebody who's been around in the background for much longer than than that. Like I would have thought. When did he start in Saturday Night Live? Um, I think he might have started the same time as Kristen Wiig. Oh, hey. So like like. I feel old now. Yeah, yeah. Did the um. He did. He did all the work with Pixar and um, and South Park years, um, like after I think yeah, he, he left he Saturday Night Live. Yeah, yeah. which it, which is remarkable. But this this would have been before he did Saturday Night Live. Yeah, I mean, haters, haters, fantastic. Like haters is an amazing. Like you look at the work that he's done, and it's just like this is a man who loves Hollywood, basically. Yeah, um, haters, haters gonna hate. Yeah, <laughs> you you can't stop the hate, um, but he so he does a good Schwarzenegger. Yeah, yeah. All right then. It's not it's not this overblown, <laughs> <kind of laughs> which you may hear on other doing. podcasts. Yeah, yeah. Um, but anyway, so with so I see leadership qualities. Okay. Yeah. Uh-huh. That, that, <laughs> it's like rather rather than rather than then, some, I need your cards. So I see leadership qualities. Uh, I need your cards. I need your, your clothes, your boots, and your motorcycle. <laughs> Um, I don't even know what that was. <laughs> but with that in mind, then, will we segue gently into the spoiler zone? Let's seg. Way. Into the spoiler zone. Spoiler zone. Thank you, and we're back at the spoiler zone. So, Andrew, what was Terminator 2 about for you? 
for me, it was <laughs> it was about a young boy finding a father figure in the form of a child. No, it was thank it was, you, Andrew. <laughs> no, it was about it was about a, a, a robot coming from the future to to kill a child, and then um, the the another robot shows an, up. <laughs> another robot um, uh, be also sent from the future to 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 protect that child and. Um, the hijinks that ensue. Yeah, yeah. Which robot's going to win? One of them's better than the other. Really? So, the, so, the, so. so when the, you say better than the other, you mean in your opinion or like objectively? Well, no, it's uh, even, even, even T nine hundred will 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 accept T eight hundred. T eight hundred. Yeah, well, that's they even worse. A, yeah, I know. What they skipped a whole like two hundred like generations, presumably. Well, I think I think they're going up in hundreds. Okay. Personally. You don't think like there's a T eight or one? The model? the um, Terminator three uh, model. What was she? I think she was a TX. TX. I believe so. Yeah. God. <laughs> we'll talk about Terminator three. We'll probably talk about the horrible sequels at some point later in the later in the podcast. Yeah. Uh, not to not to spoil. We're done professionally. <laughs> not Sorry. To, not to. Uh, um... That that wasn't good. <laughs> Somehow your Christian Bale impression is is even worse than your Schwarzenegger impression. I didn't know how it was possible. We'll just put in a drop. Yeah. It was, it was, do you want me to trash your lights? But um, no. So I mean, this is the thing, right? Because because Terminator Two is in theory a relatively complex uh, plot in that it involves lots of time travel, lots of different characters, lots of different agendas. Lots of different characters. Like, in terms of, like, if you were to, to graph the plot, for example, which is great, because everybody loves graphing plots to enjoyable movies. But if you were to, like, follow the plot as it goes and, like, explain the, the movie to somebody, and you go, well, and then it turns out it's a shape-shifting robot, and then, um, then sort of Linda Hamilton goes off to kill Miles Dyson, and then they, she stops, and then they go and they try and smash the stuff, but then the shapeshifter shows up. It's all very intricate and complicated, but I think the narrative arc is very I don't very know tricky. how complicated it is. I think it's just complicated enough. Why I, you, okay. I, like, I, I, I think when we were doing Aliens, we talked about uh, James Cameron as a writer. Yeah. And when I was talking about it, I don't like the, the writing in this movie, what I, what I, what I meant was that yeah. I didn't like the dialogue. But the actual structuring of everything and the... The kind of um, the thematic, the, thematic and character arcs, yeah, 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 are 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 actually quite good because there's there's this kind of um, free will versus determinism kind of um, debate within them, and and there's the there's the kind of the Oppenheimer uh, thing about Dyson where 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 you um, where you're um, under the relationship between man and technology. And 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 all of this and man's own kind of, sort of self-destructive yeah. impulses. As and well. the way the way the way that um, machines have been used in in science fiction to ask questions about the the human the, condition. Yeah, like Robocop. Yeah. <laughs> Everything or like, can be or like that data, data in uh, Star Trek. In, in Star Trek. Yeah. Or even like David in, in in the recent say Prometheus and an Alien Covenant, for example. But I mean, I do think. That Cameron, we'll talk about Cameron's dialogue in a moment because yeah. I think we both have very strong feelings about Cameron's dialogue. Yeah, but I think that as a writer, one of the appeals of Cameron is that first of all, he's a very strong thematic guy. First, he he completely understands. I agree like, with that. What the script is about, in a, in a sense, in a way that goes beyond this happens and this happens and this happens. And second of all, he maintains a very clear sense of character. Um, throughout the film like all the character arcs and all the character beats 
feel organic to those characters. Like, you understand why characters are acting in the way that they are at any given moment, which is something that I feel like maybe modern cinema or modern blockbusters in particular don't have. Where And we talked about this when we were talking about 2001 Space Odyssey, where things tend to happen in modern blockbusters and in, in, in films in general because the plot needs them to happen to make that leap from plot point D to plot point E. But I think with, with Cameron's films, there's always an understanding of why the characters are acting in the way that they are. So, for example, there's a point in the film where um, where Sarah Connor goes off to kill Miles Dyson. And you understand, first of all, you understand why she's going off to kill Miles Dyson, right? She's just had a dream. And then you, you understand then when she gets there, why she can't follow through on that. Yeah. Because she sees the kids and the kids then are, are paired with the images of the kids in her own vision of like this, this nuclear apocalypse. Yeah. Um, and you understand these, this, first of all, you understand the action and then you understand the dramatic reversal in a way that's, I think it's very simple, but it's not diminished by that simplicity. Yeah. Like the fact that it is so clearly explained. And in fairness... Well, all, all, all that stuff is very good. Yeah. And I th- it, 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 it's, it's the thing that, um, that um, hacks me off, uh, uh, as, as, as young John Connor might say, or, or, um, or no, whoa, whoa. When you really want to shine a guy, yeah, when yeah, something really, really shines, shines me. Um, yeah, is 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 the dialogue in this movie, and it's not just John Connor who is a teenager, and teenagers have terrible dialogue. But, in um, movies and in real life, yeah, yeah, but, but it's, particularly in movies where they're written by middle-aged yeah, men. But it's it's also Sarah Connor and the the. Um, so I hope you got two million yeah. factor no, no, sunblock. It's, or... it's anybody who's not wearing two hundred million factor sunblock is gonna have a very bad day. Um, oh, which it's terrible. But this is like we were talking about this when we were watching it because you were like, "Yep, yeah, that's Hicks dialogue." Yeah. Because it is. It's the character from uh, Aliens who everybody loves except you. you yeah. Absolutely hated Hicks. Well, like the, it's it's just uh, um, the like people really love the. Um, Game over, man. Um, and and I, I mean, there's a certain kind of uh, stop your grinning and drop your limb. Yeah, there's a certain kind of appeal to it. There, there's, there's. Well, I think a lot of, of this, that's Paxton, though. Yeah, there, yeah, yeah. But there's, there's so much kind of babble in, in, um, in, in aliens that, I, like, I've talked about it before, and they're like going talking about their guns and yeah, yeah, and uh, and and do you think there's an element of that in Terminator Two? Not really, but the, just the dialogue isn't very good. Like they, they, we we talked about the uh, two million sunblock. But there's also uh, the bit where John Connor picks up the chip and the robot arm and says, "Now we've got Skynet by the balls." Yeah, like, and let's um, let's buck out of here. Yeah, it's a little bit. It is very very corny. Yeah, and 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 I think another, another written by a, by like a human adult who you assume has never interacted with a child. Yeah, and and. And the thing is that that's, um, Edward Furlong is re- re- really really enjoying all of, all of, all of, all of this well, stuff. To be fair, he's a kid. He, this is his oh, first yeah. film role. There's a very there's a very kind of cocky, unlikable. Um, <laughs> uh, Jesus. <laughs> yeah, I mean it's 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 okay. Edward Furlong isn't isn't doing any uh, isn't a, doing movies anymore. It's a grown up adult with his own problems to worry about. Yeah, it was uh, numerous. Um, uh, but... but here's the thing, actually, and I, I think we've talk, talked about this before, but it's worth bringing up in the context of discussing Edward Furlong's performance. Do you think that when people are talking about movies and criticizing movies, <clears throat> that there's a tendency to play softball with child actors? 
Because this is something, yeah, it actually and, came up and, recently. And, and, um, and I can I, understand I, I why. Think, like, yeah, I, I think you, you can't, you can't blame a child. You can praise, you can, yeah, you can, you can praise them when it's good. But, but, but actually, I think we talked about this when, when we spoke about Manchester by the Sea. It's, it's mostly casting. Yeah. And if, if, if a, um, if a child is cast, uh, quite well in a movie and then gets all of these other offers and is able to develop as 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 an actor uh, then like that's 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 sort of on them but they they, they I, I don't think I, I, I don't think there's like a preternatural kind of um, child actor in in in, in a sense I I, I mean the the likes of the likes of River Phoenix had 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 a kind of like a way about him that yeah. I think um, uh, directors found kind of compelling and you know and, DiCaprio and, sort of counts almost yeah yeah no did the, um, the, DiCaprio is the one who comes to mind for me the DiCaprio definitely but Ricky, in, Ricky possibly in, although it's sad in, that she's sort of never got the material as an adult but she's still working Christina Ricci yeah 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 I suppose. In general, it's yeah. casting. Yeah. Because it, it it's 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 rare to find, I guess, a child with the with the intelligence and depth of of like a young Leonardo DiCaprio or Christina Ricci. Yeah. Or I suppose a um um an actress that we've that we've talked about, Nat, Nat, Natalie Bortman. Oh yeah, there, yeah, actually, there's a great example. Like. Yeah, but um, in, in 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 general, I think it's. Actually, we've talked in general, and then we've listed like tons of examples, <laughs> As exceptions. Of, yeah. yeah, and then there's aside from all those cases where we're wrong about what we're saying. Yeah, there's but, there's the example as well where 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 you take it a child who's very good at something, and then you cast them in movies that they would be very good in, like uh, Macaulay Culkin. Yeah, he had like a a, a, very... a string of of movies where he basically played Kevin McAllister. Yeah, yeah, but and 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 he was really good at that, and and he had like great kind of um, kind of com- 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 comedic performance. Oh yeah, yeah, he yeah. had definite presence as a child, but once you ask him to step outside that range, you you run into a bit of bother. Like I think, like the Good Child is a fascinating concept for a movie. It's not a good movie though. Yeah. Um. But I do think I was because we were actually we were talking about this. It was um, with regards to Emma Watson, for example. Right, right. And we were talking. I was talking with um, other film critics about this, about how generally, she, like, she's not. She's a, a very commendable person. She's a very, very good social activist. Like, she's done a lot to raise awareness of good causes. Uh, but she's not necessarily the strongest actor, and it, it's very rarely mentioned when talking about her performances. Even though it, when you talk to somebody, when you ask somebody, people will generally accept it. And we were wondering. Is that a sense of, like, because she was a child actor, like, there was a sense that when you were talking about Watson's performance, there was a, like, a put the gloves on, don't be, don't be mean about this child actor. Yeah, yeah, I think, I, um, I, I, yeah, there, there's, 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 there's definitely a certain amount of that. Um, but she, she, she's a grown-ass woman now. Yeah, and, 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 and we think, were sort of, we were wondering if that had carried over. Like, yeah, I think people still think of her as, 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 as this child that yeah. they, that they have to kind of, like, that they can't be mean to. Um, yeah. But, um. Which is, which is, which is very condescending. It is incredibly condescending. And I mean, particularly given all the work she's done, like. Um, to to raise awareness of, of like feminism and, and and issues about how women are treated and all that sort of stuff. Yeah, I, I do think there is a, there's a sort of a definite sort of 
problem there, perhaps. Um, but anyway, back to Terminator 2 um, and Edward Furlong's performance and, and just the, the movie in general and the dialogue in general. Like, I think that Cameron, and one of the things that's been said about Cameron is that Cameron is a good enough director that he can compensate for his weaknesses as a dialogue writer and that when stuff is happening in a James Cameron film, you don't care that the dialogue is corny and hokey because it's always visually interesting. It's it's just that it is it doesn't it, the dialogue doesn't escalate uh, sorry do, doesn't elevate the movie um no. and 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 it takes away from from the um from the greatness of the movie. Like I don't see how you can have a movie in the top 50 of all-time movies where 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 they're flawed in 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 a such very... a fundamental aspect. Yeah, or or even or even in 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 um yeah like like maybe not even fundamental, but 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 like it plays such a part. Yeah. Like the 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 the, the role of performances and of dialogue. Yeah. They, and and like when you think of a movie like Jaws, which which is pretty much perfect. Yeah, we will both agree. Yeah, on. and um. And this ranks higher than Joe. Yeah, yeah, it does. And 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 while while it's awesome, um, and, uh, and and there's 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 so much cool stuff in it. I mean, it, it's 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 also kind of like wrong and and, <laughs> that, and, and that, like that it could have been so much better. Like right. imagine the movie like this that's also because like, because it's actually quite a smart movie. But it's just got all of this very dumb dialogue. Yeah. Well, I mean, there's, there's this stuff like, for example, there's Linda Hamilton's uh, monologues. Yeah. Which are really strange because they're they're interjected at random points of the film. So there's the, the opening opening scene. She outlines the dialogue, which explains basically what you're watching. And yeah. then And then she doesn't have any voiceover for about another, you know, two hours, at which point she's then talking in her head about how John has accepted the Terminator as a father and how what a great father he would be. Yeah. And then, you know, about 10 minutes later again, you have a sequence where she's talking about how the future was a dark highway. And it's like, these are really strange because they're not consistent enough that it's like, well, look, the movie is clearly from her perspective and she's narrating in the style of like a, you know, a 1940s film noir detective or she's explaining concepts to the audience. It's like, no, we just we just randomly have some voiceover dialogue here, here and here. And it's so purple. Like the future is like a dark highway. Right. It's just, it is horribly overwrought. And you're kind of wondering what the movie would lose if you cut it. Because, like, when you're watching John and the Terminator interact, it's not as if you need dialogue explicitly spelling out, oh, my God, it's like he's a surrogate father figure to John, who never had a father figure. Because you literally just had John in the scene directly beforehand where he's sitting underneath the car talking about how the best father figure he had was the one who taught him how to fix cars while fixing cars with the Terminator. Yeah, you know, it's not as if that character beat needs to be enunciated or elaborated through voiceover, but no. for some reason it is. What What you said has made me think about Arnold Schwarzenegger in this movie. He's, He's great, really, really good. I would argue this is Schwarzenegger's best performance. I would say so too. Um, it it's fantastic, and I mean, there, there's the old cliche of Schwarzenegger being best when he talks very little, but I think that there is something genuinely amazing and sort of human. And like, I actually, you were talking about like the performances, like Furlong is not great. And I think Furlong no. is perhaps the weakest player in the cast. I think the rest of the cast is, is really good. Yeah. Um, like I think that, um, 
Hamilton's very good. I think Patrick's very good. We'll probably talk about those in a little bit. Oh, but Patrick's Schwarzen- fantastic. Schwarzenegger is, this is the best that Schwarzenegger has ever been. And when people think about Schwarzenegger, I think that this is like, this is the, the, the performance that they're thinking about. Because do, you know, do you know, I quite, li- I quite liked uh, Last Action Hero. People really hate that movie. Yeah, well, I think, to be fair, there's a certain amount of like rehabilitation taking place, but I don't think Schwarzenegger is the best thing about it. No. I think it's a very clever movie. I think, I think he's quite decent in it. Oh, he is. Yes. Yeah. And I mean, I would argue he's even quite decent in like Jingle All the Way, which is a terrible movie. <laughs> but he is in no way the worst part of it. Right. Um, but I do think, I also think that there are movies where he is terrible, like say Red Heat, for example, um, which are movies that are not calibrated to his strengths. No. Like you could tell that when Cameron was writing Terminator 2, he was like, well, look, I've worked with Schwarzenegger. And I've watched Schwarzenegger's uh, movies since then. And I understand that these are what he can do. This is what he can do. And I'm going to tailor this to the script to basically play to the strengths that I've observed as an actor for him. And and it does. It fits perfectly. So why didn't he put in more more one-liners? He does. He still gets hasta la vista, baby, and stuff like that. And he, like, <laughs> I love in, in, I think it's like Commando, where he like shoots somebody and they stick into something and he stops. Stick around. Like, stick around. No, Commando, Commando has like the best Schwarzenegger one-liners. It's the great bit where it's like, it's like don't wake my friend. He's dead tired. Hey, shorty, remember I said I would kill you last? Yeah, yeah, you did. You can't kill me. I lied. Um, I, I, I let him go. Yeah. But it is... Um, but like, I think that the Terminator 2 treads that needle very, very carefully because he... There is a lot... There is a bit of, like... There's a lot of Schwarzenegger one-liners. Like, the bit where when he shoots the guy in the kneecap after breaking into the institution... He'll live. And yeah, he'll live. And then there's the bit when... That, I, I feel like that was... Like, that made sense in the context of 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 the movie like it wasn't kind of like, yeah oh this terminator guy really likes one-liners yeah it's like no that's that's sort of what the what the terminator <laughs> would say in but a, it's also like a, a, a kind a, of a, a rice or something yeah yeah it like it, it you can believe it as an unintentionally funny yeah. kind of line or even the bit where he learned like, this is great because i remember you like pointed he's not to, trying to make like, like a banter yeah. yeah yeah but i remember the bit where it's the bit where they go to cyberdyne systems and John goes, you promised you wouldn't hurt anybody. And he turns around and he smirks. Yeah. And he says, I promise. Um, and it's like, the guy couldn't smile a scene ago. There was an entire scene about how the Terminator cannot smile. Yeah. But for some reason, he somehow mastered the art of smirking. I, I think, no, I, I, I think um, by that point, he would have learned how to smirk. Yeah. But it, it's the moment in the, in the weapons shelter where they've they've they've, <laughs> they've 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 just come from the um, the uh, uh, petrol station where he was trying to smile yeah. and couldn't. Um, and, and he picks and, up a minigun. And he picks up a minigun and smirks. Yeah, and there is like I think that there's a sense that the role is very much tailored to Schwarzenegger, but he's so good in it. Yeah, and there is a sense like, and it, and we talked about this this before, right? Because Cameron, and I, I, it's I'm not sure whether it's a criticism or like a. A, a sort of a, an endorsement of him but one of Cameron's core themes and one of the things that really interests Cameron is this idea of found families and it's something that happens in Aliens as well where you have this horrific situation with these broken individuals that ends up creating this sort of almost family unit so in Aliens you have Ripley finding Newt and finding um, 
what's the name of Michael Bynes character it can't be Hicks because Hicks is the guy who goes game over right yeah, yeah. but uh, with Michael Bynes character for example we need to go to the fact machine. No, we're not going to the fact machine <laughs> okay. on this one. Um, and then you have that here as well, where Linda Hamilton's character, who is Sarah Connor, like she ends up creating this weird family unit with the Terminator and with John, basically. Yeah. And they sort of, they become this fan family. And she even talks about how John has a father figure who will never get tired of him, never be too busy watching the game, who will never be, you know, invested in something beyond caring for and looking out for John. And how he's basically the perfect father. Yeah. And like there's this interesting argument that's sort of that Cameron's a very heteronormative film director. He's he's very much invested in this idea of nuclear family units as the right way to, or as not as the right way, but as like Arnold Schwarzenegger isn't really the the perfect father. Um, he 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 kills himself or stone sober. Um, and, uh, and I mean, to be fair, Sarah Connor's not exactly the best mother either, to be no, honest. No, she, she, doesn't, she doesn't tell him to stop. Yeah. Uh, here's the thing. Let's actually talk about Sarah Connor in this movie, right? Because I actually think she's, she's, fasc- she's a fascinating character. I think Linda Hamilton's great. Yeah. Um, one There's of the ex- some very good kind of like her smoking cigarettes, uh, like um, cleaning guns. Yeah. Stuff. <laughs> a lot of that. A lot of yeah. that. But I mean... And and to to be honest, there's a lot of like it's great when you read interviews from 1991 right. uh, with Linda Hamilton because they all begin with she's puffing on a pack of camels. It's like yes, I can kind of see that based on what I've seen of her in this movie. But um, one of the things I, that's interesting about Sarah Connor is that like, and I think Terminator Two is in many ways like it's basically the stuff that Cameron learned on Aliens about making a sequel to a film. Right. And then sort of like honed it and maybe maybe perhaps even simplified it a bit. Actually, it's amazing that he did Aliens and Terminator 2 and they're both these sequels that people think of as better than... than yeah. Well, that's a hugely divisive thing. Like, I would have friends who would fight over the idea that Aliens is better than Alien or Terminator 2 is better than Terminator. Yeah. Um, I kind of agree. Yeah, I can, I, can, I can see. I imagine you would. Yeah. Um, I'm more agnostic. I'm I'm willing to say that they are so different from the original um, that they don't really bear comparison. Yeah. Like, I think that they deserve to be in their own class rather than saying one is better than the other. But I do think that, like, you can see a lot of the stuff that Cameron did with Aliens, he sort of did again with Terminator 2 in a more family-friendly way, in a more sort of accessible way. Yeah. Um, and I think that, like, for example, the, the character arc with Sarah Connor is very similar to what he did with Ripley. Which is like Sarah Connor went through this horrific event in the first film where she was stalked by this sort of horrible menace that was trying to kill her. There's a lot right? of motherhoods. In his films. Yeah. And particularly even in, say, Avatar, for example. I mean, you could argue even True Lies, for example, is, is sort of fixated on this idea of like what it means to be a, a wife and mother as well. Yeah. I mean, Terminator 2 had Sarah Connor as the mother. Um, Aliens had uh, the alien queen. As, uh, as I think Ellen Ripley as as the mother and the alien queen as sort of like a twisted dark mirror. Oh no, 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 no. Alien queen. No, Ellen Ripley was the mother, and the alien queen was the twisted dark sort of perverted mirror of it. Like the, I, the I, alien. I thought queen... Ellen Ripley was the twisted dark perverted mirror. Of... No, no. Well, Ellen Ripley is the mother who loses her daughter early in the film, and then finds a replacement, and is sort of contented by it. Yeah. And... Um, so she builds a family unit, whereas the alien queen is just this factory farm, like, giving birth to horrible drones. Like She cares about every one of those children. All right. Anyway, back to the point. I do think it's interesting that, like, 
you could argue that in Aliens, Ellen Ripley is strengthened by her experience in Alien. Like that she's traumatized by what happens, but she finds like it sort of strengthens her and solidifies her and turns her into like a fighter and a warrior. Yeah. But I think you could argue that Sarah Connor takes that even further and is like broken by her experience. Yeah. Because like one of the things I, I quite like about Terminator 2 and about the character of Sarah Connor in it is like... The character never feels particularly sort of fetishized. She never feels like... It never feels like the movie's saying that what's happened to her has made her a stronger... Has made her a better person. It's like, no, she's been scarred horribly yeah. by what happened. And I feel I feel like she's trying to... She's trying to be this um, kick-ass uh, uh, military commando. And she's so kind of rattled yeah. and shaking and uh, reluctant yeah. and... Um, like when 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 she's going to kill Dyson, she's 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 lingering, um so so long on it. When 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 um Robert Patrick yeah is um um uh, coming at her, she's she's trying to reload the shotgun and she's like shaking and fumbling and yeah. like um she's she's yeah she's a character who's trying to who's trying to um go straight back into being um. But uh, this person um, that she was, which which was like raising this child to be a to be a, a future a, a, leader, a future leader, and 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 she's being this kind of um, has never properly processed uh, what happened to her. Like. Yeah, she's 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 suffering from post traumatic stress. Yeah, and I th- I think I actually really like that about the, the presentation is that like there's a sense with with Ripley that Ripley Ripley had this traumatic experience and obviously like she has nightmares about it like she has a nightmare with a chest burster but she's also like perfectly competent and capable after yeah. coming through it which which is grand and I think to be fair that's something that happens with male heroes quite a lot as well but I do think that like one of the things I like about Terminator 2 is the sense that like anybody who had been through what Sarah Connor had been through which is like discovering that your son would be the savior of mankind who sent this guy back in time who slept with you and fathered the child who then died while being hunted by a killer machine from the future would be a little messed up and would be a little disoriented and would be like would feel the need to hold it together for the sake of her child but would also like how do you respond to that and i mean one of the things i actually like is that the idea of sarah connor being so ripped and being so macho that actually that didn't come from cameron apparently that came from hamilton when she was discussing what she wanted to do in the sequel with Cameron. Okay. Because she thought that, like, after what, what Sarah Connor had been through, like, she would never want to feel like a victim again, basically. Yeah. And she would so dedicate the, like, turning her body into a weapon. And, like, it, it's interesting because people still talk about Sarah Connor arms uh, when women have that sort of muscly structure, which is... is, is Not re- a fan. I, really I li- depressing. But... I like to police women's bodies. Yes, yes, you do, Andrew. Um, but I mean, it's really depressing that like our idea of what women's bodies should look like are is so set in stone that like this single movie from 1991 in which a woman had muscles on her arms, that's the one example that we can point to of it. So we can say, look, she's got Sarah Connor arms. Like, <laughs> she's got Sarah Connor arms. Yeah. Um, <laughs> it was a, a very unpopular follow up to Betty Davis eyes. Um, but I, I do, I do like that, that there's no attempt to. Because one of the things about the 90s and 90s movies in general and strong female characters in inverted commas is that there's this... Chubba chubs. This weird line. Hubba bubbas. This weird line 
that movies walk between sort of trying to present female action heroes with agency and then presenting them as fetish objects. Like, so for example, I don't know, Laura Croft is a great example, but I mean, even say Catwoman in Batman Returns. Right. And I think that one of the things that I really like about, um, about Terminator 2 is that it doesn't fetishize like Linda Hamilton. It's like, it's not like she's a cool, like she's a cool military chick. It's like, no, no, she's, she's a big bundle of, of nerves and neurosis and dysfunction. Like anybody would be had they been in that situation. And you were kind of into it. I may have been kind of into it, Andrew. Um, <laughs> but um, no, well, I mean, I, I think that's a reasonable, reasonable argument to make. And it's interesting that Cameron, in some ways, fetishizes male bodies, right, more than he fetishizes female bodies. Yeah, but, there's, there's, there's that great stuff with um, Schwarzenegger, like naked Schwarzenegger, with all the, 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 the. Um, uh, wait, waitresses and uh, yeah. pa- patrons in this dive bar kind yeah. of look and shot at, at a low angle to make him look impressive and sort of like yeah. lingering well, on him. Six foot one, like you, you every know. angle is a low angle. Yeah, but I mean, even the stuff like, but I mean, even stuff like say Bine in the first Terminator or uh, Robert Patrick here, where they materialize sort of crouched in a way that sort of emphasizes their their muscles and their leanness. Yeah, like I mean, Schwarzenegger is obviously the 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 big example in that he's he's like this. If you were to pick a perfect specimen of mankind, um, Schwarzenegger would be up there. He was Mr. Universe, wasn't he? Yeah. Um, but I mean, even stuff like the way that he shoots Bine and he shoots sort of Robert Patrick, it's the same sort of, like, it's it's an interesting way of looking at, like, male bodies as objects that are not, uh, you know, that are, are, like, lean and sort of, like, that are energetic and dynamic. Uh, and he doesn't really do that with female characters, which I, I really appreciate. Here's something that was pointed out to me, though. Like, 90, 80s and 90s cinema tended to do that a lot with male bodies. Like, yeah. And and like what's his name Jean Claude Van Damme arguably is, is a great example of that. like Universal Soldier. Oh yeah, is is a great example like, of a movie that has male nudity like incredible. So Isn't much it? so much buns. So many buns. It's uh... Jean Claude Van Damme actually taught uh, Kylie Minogue his uh, butt exercise that he used to he used to lie on the ground like on his on on his back and and like clench his butt so that so that like his his like half of his body moved off, 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 the off, off, off the ground. And Kylie was like, what's that you're doing there? They were having an affair at the time. Yes, and he showed her his Thailand, which is perhaps my best, the best euphemism I've ever heard. Yeah. Um, this is when they're making Street Fighter. That's it, that's it. Um, and they were actually physically in Thailand, to be, to be fair. It wasn't just a really creepy one-liner. <laughs> um, but I do think that there, there was that sort of sense in, in 80s and 90s movies. And it's kind of, it's weird that it moved away and it's kind of coming back now a little bit, but not as much. Yeah, I mean, women are divided on, on well, heterosexual women are divided on whether they like men's buns or not. Really? Yeah, like like some 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 women will say um, there's a big debate um, about this on on how did this get made. Um, I I think June Diane Rayfield doesn't doesn't particularly care for buns, um, and really? doesn't doesn't know exactly who they're for. All right. I mean. Well, I mean, to be fair, it is it is presumptive to argue that, like, the female gaze is the male gaze just transposed, right? Cause yeah. The, the assumption is that, that men like certain parts of women's anatomy and that the, the male gaze obviously captures that. Yeah. And that in trying to translate that, to apply that to male characters by focusing on buns and pets, that you miss the point of, of what, you know, what is attractive to a woman. Yeah. I think that this is... I, I love the fact that this is two straight guys talking about a straight guy making a movie um, about the, the you know, trying to capture uh, the sexualization of male bodies. Yeah, 
But I do think there is something there about the way that Cameron does this stuff. I think it's I think it's fascinating. And I think that one of the things about Sarah Connor is the fact that she rejects so many of the tropes that you expect with a strong female lead character. Yeah. But let's talk about Robert Patrick then. Oh yeah. Because Robert Patrick is amazing. Oh, he's fantastic. And I'm actually I'm kind of I'm really sad that he didn't have a big as massive a career after this as he really sort of deserved to. Because he, this was one of his breakout roles. Before this, his largest role was arguably Die Hard 2, where he played a terrorist with a single line of dialogue, oh. which may or may not have been there over there, and then he gets <laughs> shot. Um, but uh, Patrick is is just phenomenal. What, other than this, he's he, he's had those appearances on X Files, and not 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 a whole lot else really. Well, I mean, to be fair, he's doing like he's starring in t- TV shows like Scorpion and stuff. Oh and yeah, he's in but, The Sopranos for a couple of seasons. Yeah, like he's. He works steadily, but he never really had the sort of the pop culture cash that I think he deserved because he is incredible in this. Yeah. And I think mean, one of the things that's very smart about the movie is, well, okay, well, let's, let's talk about the, the Terminators in this movie, right? Because one of the things that Cameron does is Cameron basically decided very early in the process that he wanted to bring Schwarzenegger back and he wanted to bring him back as a good guy rather than a bad guy. Right. And apparently, actually... This was Cameron's idea and not Schwarzenegger's. Because most people would assume that it was Schwarzenegger trying to protect his image. But Cameron's argument was that he had seen so many movies, like, after Schwarzenegger had done Terminator, where Terminator, where he played the same sort of role with the same sort of violence, and had been portrayed as a heroic character, that he wanted to take the Terminator, played by Schwarzenegger, put him in a situation like that, but then also have him become a father figure, also have him become a much more traditional male role model almost within that. Yeah, and a very PG-13 action hero, oh, yeah. because he's not killing anyone. Not at all. Well, here's here's the thing, actually. One, this is, is sort of... Cameron, when he's writing, we talked about Cameron being a good writer, and part of him being a good writer is he explains a lot of what happens you know, within the plot of the film. But there's also an understanding, like Cameron seems to understand that the audience will accept that they're watching a film and that things happen because they are films and because, like, maybe they don't make sense in the context of the universe themselves, but they make sense in terms of the audience watching the film. And one of those things is when the Terminator is introduced at the start of the film. Right. right? So when Schwarzenegger materializes and goes to the biker bar, Right. And steals the leather clothes and the motorcycle and all the sunglasses. He's looking at people and it's like ectomorph, mesomorph. Which, by the way, are real terms, Andrew informs me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The, uh, um, the um, people, pe- people of different kinds of bodies. There's, there's, there's a type that can't put on muscle or fat. Really? Um, um, really, uh, pr- particularly well. There's, there's, there's the types that can put on muscle and fat. Um, very easily, and and then there's the um, there's a mesomorph which which Arnold Schwarzenegger is. And what's a mesomorph then? Yeah, they 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 um they 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 don't have the problems that a um, an endomorph has in in becoming um Muscle. over overweight uh, quite quite um like they're 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 the perfect bodybuilder um body oh, okay. type in in. In that they they can they can they can put on um, muscle uh, easier than fat. Fair, yeah, fairly fair, fair, fairly easy, and they can also burn. Um, they can get rid of fat fairly quickly. Oh, okay, that's pretty yeah. amazing. I didn't know those were actually things. But during that scene where he visits that bar, so they they sound like something out of Alien. It does exactly. That's what I was thinking when he described it as a metamorph. It's like a xenomorph. But one of the things that I like about the scene is that the Terminator doesn't actually kill anybody. 
No. Like, he stabs a guy through a shoulder and pins him to a bar. He throws another guy onto a cooker. He snaps a couple of wrists, breaks a couple of bones, but he takes what he wants and he leaves. And I mean, even when he leaves, the bartender, like, comes out with a shotgun and says, I can't let you steal that man's bike. It's not like, I can't let you murder all these people. Yeah. Like, at that point, John Connor hasn't told the Terminator not to kill anybody. There's absolutely no reason why the Terminator shouldn't kill those people. But he doesn't because the movie needs him to be a hero. Yeah. And and because it needs to fit with his sort of presentation later on. But also, I like that the movie's so ambiguous about that because it's structured in such a way that when you're watching the film for the first time, you can believe that Schwarzenegger would be the bad guy. And you can believe that Jason Patrick would be the good guy. Because when Jason Patrick materializes, um, first of all, he doesn't kill the cop on screen. Yeah. Um, and second of all, he doesn't shapeshift on screen. So you don't discover that he's a Terminator until Arnold Schwarzenegger shoots him in the mall. So, like, you get this excellent half hour of buildup where there's this ambiguity about who's the good guy and who's the bad guy and sort of what the audience expectation is. I think that's very clever on Cameron's part as a writer. But, of course, that was all spoiled by all the advertising. Yeah. Including the trailer that we watched last week. Yes. Um, but I, I think there's something fascinating. And there's also, like, in terms of stuff that happens that, for reasons that don't make sense to the film, but which makes sense... To the audience watching the film and to... This is live, by the way. This is being recorded at the exact same time as we're talking into these microphones. Yes. Yes, it is. Yeah. Um, master of the obvious. Um, Darren is. <laughs> but um, one of the things that I, I like about the presentation of... Um, well, another one, another example of what I was talking about there, which was this idea that like Cameron shows you things that don't make sense in the context of the universe, but which makes sense in terms of being a film, is stuff like the T-1000 always reverting back to Robert Patrick so the audience knows who he is. Like, there are several right. points in the film where it makes no sense for the character to look like Robert Patrick, right? Yeah. yeah. So, for example, when he's walking through the psychiatric institution, he should still look like that guy who he stuck the needle through the eye of. Yeah, yeah. the... The, um... the guy from Gremlins, too. Yeah, Gre the, the Gre Gremlins, too. There's, there's, there's this character who... Uh, there's this actor who, um, who has, has a twin. twin. <laughs> and, 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 and that... His twin... Is, is also an actor who has a twin. And it's just perfect. Yeah. Uh, but it does sort of lend themselves to, to these sort of sequences. So that you can have a scene where you can have the two of them in shot. That's relatively inexpensive. Fun fact, Linda Hamilton, at the point where she was imitated by uh, the T-1000, she shot those scenes with her twin sister as well. Really? And what would happen is her twin sister would be whatever version of Sarah Connor was further away from the camera. Huh. So that scene at the end... <laughs> she just had a twin sister. She just had a twin sister. Because obviously that wasn't an issue when they were casting the first one, yeah. Huh. Well, that's what gave Cameron the idea of doing that at the climax with the T-1000. Because it was a very cheap and cost-effective way of doing it. But I mean, we'll probably... We'll talk a bit about the budgeting of the film and stuff in a moment. But I really like the, T1, the T-1000 because it's such a clever, clever twist. Like, it's like... You had the, the T-800 in, in Terminator... That was just this big muscle-bound, unstoppable killing machine. Yeah. So what's your improvement on that? It's this lanky little guy who's tiny. Like we were completely watching completely unremarkable. Completely, which is how the script describes him. Uh, but there is like we were watching the climax of the scene where Schwarzenegger throws down with the T one thousand. It's like who would win in a real life fight between <laughs> Arnold Schwarzenegger and Robert Patrick? Yeah. Place your bets now. But I, I like this. I think that's a clever decision to make. I think that's a clever direction to go. It feels like Robert Patrick smokes cigarettes. Arnold Schwarzenegger <laughs> smokes cigars. Um, that might be the like way to go. His, yeah, his, um, his, his cigars would beat his cigarettes in a fight. Yeah. 
That that's how that's how one sided yeah, this thing is. Anthropomorphic. Yeah, yeah. I, I like that we went from the objectification of male bodies to phallic metaphors so so quickly there. <laughs> I didn't even realize. What else is a penis, Darren? Everything. <laughs> but um, well, here's the, actually Patrick also like he comes across as a sweetheart in interviews. Like there's a really great when he took over the X Files. There was a really great interview with Entertainment Weekly before any of his episodes had aired. When he was basically, when he was talking about how it was, what it was like to step into the role left by David Duchovny. And he's like, yeah, I, I, I really, really appreciate it if you could write something that will make the fans like me. Because it's my first day on the job and I, I don't want to get the show cancelled. Seems like a southern gentleman. He really does. Yeah. Um, Mike Vince Gilligan. The, T1, the T-1000 is an amazing character. Like, he trained himself to run with his mouth closed. He modelled his mannerisms on a hawk, I think. Where he keeps his head down and his eyes constantly watching. Yeah. Like, it's all these one. Like, he doesn't have that it's much... It's amazing, by the way, running with your mouth closed. Well, it's such a small thing, but it is so uncanny. I feel, I feel like I want to do that now. <laughs> <laughs> like, if I've, ever, if I've ever got to do another marathon again, I'm, 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 I'm going to freak out everybody. By running with your mouth closed. <laughs> I hadn't figured that out until... In a police I'm, outfit. <laughs> I hadn't figured that out until that was pointed out to me. Which is like, because it's one of those things that's like, the way that he runs, because he, run, he does the Tom Cruise run with his hands, obviously, which yeah. is, is partly uncanny of itself, right? But until somebody points out, look, he's running with his mouth closed, you're like, oh, that's what it is. Yeah. <laughs> um, but, it's, it's, it's amazing. It's, it's, um, it's like one of these actors who, who, who has this role in, in a blockbuster and they take it very... Seriously. Yeah, yeah. They, 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 they think about. Um, okay, um, let, let me let me think about the forms of animals and yeah. uh, and the 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 the, the, logic the of movements yeah. and and um, oh, I've 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 done some ballet. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I guess I can commit to this. Yeah, yeah, and um, oh yeah, three 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 years of mime at Lecoq in, in and it's Paris. finally paying off. Yeah. Um, like uh, like 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 Peter Weller in RoboCop, yeah. although that didn't pay off. <laughs> he had this idea for how RoboCop was going to move. Okay, and then they gave him the suit. <laughs> like, okay, so I'm just going to walk like uh, like it's the only way it's physically possible for me to move in this costume <laughs> with difficulty. <laughs> yeah, but um, but no, and that's actually this is interesting because we were watching this right, and the thing that. The fact that the T one thousand disguises itself as a as a police officer. Yeah, I was thinking that was relevant, and I believe you have a lot to say about this. Well, it was basically the when people think about the um, the, the Los Angeles Police Department and the nineties. Like I, I would argue that Terminator Two is a very very Los Angeles centric movie, and and there are lots of reasons for that. Oh, part, yeah. of, part of that is down to the, the shooting locations. Yeah, like 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 the um... the riverbed. Yeah. Uh, but I mean, even stuff like Cameron studied under Roger Corman and he learned a lot from Corman. And one of the things that Corman taught him was that a great way to get production value on budget, which, by the way, should not have been an issue with a $100 million budget <laughs> film, but which Cameron still stuck to and which I appreciate, is that if you want to do that, you shoot in abandoned and quiet locations um, that give you a sense of real place and real texture, um, costing you next to nothing. So there's like a number of points in 
uh, Terminator 2 where he shoots in locations that are very, very, very clearly Los Angeles locations that yeah. are very quiet. So, for but example, it's also like completely like uh, uh, secluded. And, yeah. yeah. And removed. So, like, there's the, the park where Cyberdyne is, the sort of industrial park. Yeah. Which is very much like that sort of Los Angeles technology sort of off the sprawl thing. You have the Los Angeles Riverbed, which is like one of the places that I will forever associate with LA due to like Chinatown and due to, to Terminator 2. And then even at the climax... The Grand Theft Auto series. That's it, exactly. I was actually... They, they, they recreate um, the truck uh, coming, Bicycle, coming, so coming coming through the um, the the bridge in, yeah. in, in I think... Um, uh, It'd be four or five, right? No, it, it was San Andreas. Um, San Andreas, yes. Well, this is one of the things. Like, I don't want to get don't want to get too far down the rabbit hole talking about Grand Theft Auto. But one of the things I really like about Grand Theft Auto is that it's a presentation. It's obviously inspired by real cities. So, like, obviously New York, Miami, um, Los Angeles. But it's inspired by London as well. Uh, and but I mean the the more recent games, yeah, the three D games. But they're clearly inspired not so much by the real locations as by the pop cultural memory of those locations. Yes, yeah. So, like, the version of New York is the version that appears in Martin Scorsese films, for example. Um, and the version of Los Angeles, you can tell, is based on the version of L.A. that appears in films like Terminator 2 and stuff. Yeah. There's, there's, there's an exhibition at the moment in the, uh, the Irish Museum of Modern Art in, uh, in Kilmainham. Um, where 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 they have Koyana Scassi, uh, being being played um side by side with with a, with with they've tried to do a shot for shot using GTA, <laughs> um, um uh yeah um but it is like it it's the, yeah so so like a lot of Koyana Scassi is 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 Los Angeles. Well, I mean that that was actually one of the things that they did. The introductory trailer, I think, for GTA Five was set to Pruitt Ego, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah, for for GTA Four, I think. Wasn't oh, okay, it, yeah. it might have been GTA Four. But again, like, and and I think that like obviously the version of Vice City is obviously inspired by Scarface and by by um what's it called by Miami Vice, for example. Yeah. But I, I think that like Terminator Two is very much a Los Angeles movie. It's something that happens unconsciously because obviously most of the writers and directors in Hollywood tend to live in Los Angeles unless they're international directors. Yeah. So you get a lot of that soaking in. You pick up a lot of ambient noise. Like when you're watching, say, even stuff like Star Trek Voyager, for example, is very much engaged with sort of 90s Los Angeles feeling. So stuff like the Kazon being like this this fear of gang culture. Right. And, and stuff like this, this racial anxiety that breathes through in, in the way that they're treated and the way that the writers approach Star Trek always really like San Francisco for some reason. Well, I think I think that's because it was like, what's we live in Los Angeles. Los Angeles is a bit of a hellhole. But where's nice around here? San yeah. Francisco. Plus they, 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 they... I think the I, US I, Navy as well. So yeah, I suppose they, they, they have this um, this uh, positive outlook on, on, on where society is going. So they've chosen this very... Liberal, liberal and yeah, um, and sort of welcoming city. But I do think that like Terminator, where, where San Francisco is the capital of the universe. Yes, pretty much. <laughs> Imagine what a world that would be. Yeah, and I also do think that Gene Roddenberry's sort of and and the idea of his his militarism and the idea that like San Francisco was a huge naval hope may also have played a, fa- a, fa- a part in that. But I do think that uh, like Terminator Two is a great example of that, in that it is very clearly uh, playing into this idea of like. The Rodney King incident happened um, weeks, it happened, sorry, months before the film was released. Uh, but it happened a couple of days after they began location shooting. And here's a fun fact for you. You know the, um, the video, the famous video 
yeah. of the beating by the five Los Angeles police officers of Rodney King. Yeah. That was filmed by an amateur cameraman, um, who George Holiday, who was standing on his balcony filming it, right? right? And when he went to the TV station to hand in the tape, they found that it was it was the second segment on the tape. The first segment on the tape had been him recording location shooting for Terminator Two. Oh, really? Which is yeah, it's a really nice sort of sort of dovetailing sort of thing. And I mean, like, I think that obviously during the 90s, those scandals within the L.A. police department sort of increased. Like, you had the Rampart scandal, you had stuff like that. You had the riots that happened after the officers were acquitted for the Rodney King beatings and stuff like that. But I think that even allowing for the fact that all of that happened after Terminator 2 was released, there was still a lot of anxiety and tension about the Los Angeles police department. And I think, like, have you seen the documentary O.J. Made in America? I have not. It's fantastic. But they cover a lot of that by covering it in parallel with O.J. Simpson. Which, by the way, is another sort of connection back to the Terminator franchise because O.J. Simpson was originally considered to play the role of the Terminator. But apparently the producers thought that he couldn't convey uh, an unstoppable killing machine convincingly. (laughs) Um, How wrong they were. How wrong they were. Um, apparently, um, Apparently Cameron only cast Schwarzenegger at the last minute when he was meeting him for the role of Kyle Reese. And he had no intention of casting him as Kyle Reese. But they got to talking about the script and Schwarzenegger was like, okay... I, okay, I'm not going to do this in the Schwarzenegger accent. But Schwarzenegger's like, okay, the character should move his eyes before he moves his head. He should reload without looking at his gun, without taking his eye off the target. And he should never blink while firing a gun. And Cameron was like, okay, that's it. You got the role. Um, what role? <laughs> Reese? No. no. No, 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 no. Uh, you don't have that range. Don't take it personally. But there is this sense of... Cameron has argued that the key theme of the Terminator films is not man versus machine. Right. Um, his argument is that it's about man's own self-destructive impulses and man's capacity to build systems that take the humanity out of the way that we interact with one another. Which is all very hippie stuff, but is all very, I think, in keeping with Cameron's sort of like later work with Avatar yeah. and stuff like that. So, like, Cameron chose to put the T-1000 in a police officer's uniform, in part because he saw the Los Angeles Police Department as a dehumanizing force. Um, he talks about on the commentary about how, in his experience, police officers tend to look down on non-police officers as, as just almost like sort of cattle or, or chattel or, or basically objects to be protected people who exist in a different class than them yeah um and the way that the system sort of encourages this by like removing oversight or by sort of encouraging people to act independently or with without any reference to like the good of the community it, it, yeah it i think it, it happens everywhere where 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 the most natural thing for a uh, police officer like like the 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 the, mo- the most obvious appeal of being a police officer is, is unchecked to have, authority. Yeah, that unchecked authority, and the most obvious thing uh, reaction to that is is it's to be on a power trip. Yeah. It's... So the like the which which the 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 amount of respect I have um, for 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 police officers uh, or um, guardi. Um, or like the the Met when I was when I was over in London, who 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 are a very good police service. Um, the amount of respect I had for them, um, like you you would, they 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 never really kind of went on 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 a power trip, even if people were being annoying. I found generally, 
I don't, of course, there there's exceptions to that. Yeah, well, there's exceptions. But the, the whole the whole nature of the role kind of set set Attracts sets it up a certain mindset for this kind of potential abuse. I think in in the in in the days of of, of camera phones, it's um, it's, it's harder to get away with. Almost. Yeah, it's harder to get away. With. And and the idea of body cams. And I do think like it's really weird how today in in the past couple of years we had this big argument about like making police officers accountable, and there's this horrible sort of reaction or blowback to it. As if to say, well, look, police officers being unaccountable is part of the, the appeal of the job. And you're like, no, no, that's not the appeal of the job at all. The appeal of the job is helping people in the community, is making the community safer. <laughs> There's sort of this unspoken assumption. No, that... it certainly is part of the appeal of the job for certain people. <laughs> I know, but you, like, it's not part of the appeal that you should be advertising and, and encouraging. And it's not, certainly not something that, say, the president and the attorney general of the United States should be championing, uh, where they're like, well, look, you could have accountability, but that would really take away from the appeal of being a police officer, right? <laughs> and you're like, no, that shouldn't in theory, uh, because the reason you should want to be a police officer is to help people. As I don't know, I just I find it amazing how frank some of this discussion is, because it's like, no, no, not being held accountable is exactly why people want to be police officers. Yeah, they, uh, they... which I think does a disservice to the people in in police forces like the Met that you're talking about, who actually do care about the community, who do sort of invest in policing, because you know. Yeah. Uh, but it is it is something that happens, and something that I think is systematic rather than and something that portrayals of say police brutality and police corruption in popular culture. I think there's a tendency to treat those as bad apples. To when we tell stories about like police brutality and about oh no like like Rambo, um it's the it's pretty much the entire police uh, force police force yeah but I mean, who are who are who are who are complicit in it and I think that that's a kind of a um a way that like Hollywood sees uh, maybe small towns yeah and more than police forces but I mean like you look at stuff like say the Law and Order franchise you look at stuff like all these big massive CSI stuff. You look at stuff like, um, even shows like, uh, innocuous shows like Elementary, for example, shows that treat police forces um, as as heroic. And, and therefore, whenever you have a bad cop, it's always like, well, he's just a bad person. It's not like it's a result of a lack of oversight or it's a result of a system that sort of advances this mentality. Yeah. Well, like, I, I think the, the police procedural has become a a um a kind of a an an industry yeah yeah where they're just kind of um churning out yeah yeah but but i think so like like that that gives you a structure um to 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 work with and the structure doesn't really kind of lend itself to to, to having all of these characters being crooked <laughs> the, on, on, unless you're the shield yeah yeah i well i think there's a certain amount of that i guess in i haven't seen much of it but in the likes of blue bloods there's i think there's a lot of kind okay. of like plots around um kind of there being um uh, uh crooked police and like you i i think it would be more, uh, interesting to have to, to have like a um, internal affairs um, uh, yeah yeah uh, police procedural where they're investigating <laughs> cops every single week <laughs> and, and the show them. that only you and i would watch and that would generate <laughs> imagine the protest that you would generate because um, there is yeah there's, there's the horrible attitude that yeah sure having body cams might stop police officers from shooting innocent people but 
you know, it would make them feel less comfortable doing their jobs. And it's like, well, you know, one, one against the other here. Blue lives matter. Yeah, blue lives matter, apparently. Um, and not just Tholians from Star Trek uh, or Andorians. But um, I do think, and it's like Cameron is very clearly thinking about that because obviously John... The Smurfs. Smurfs. Smurfs matter too. But like Cameron is very clearly sort of thinking about that aspect of the, the LAPD uh, because he, he obviously has John Connor wearing a Public Enemy t-shirt, for example. Yeah. Uh, and they would have been like, you, along with NWA in, in the 80s, they would have been singing about police brutality. And, and obviously everybody's thinking about the one example that we're not going to say right now uh, because this is a family-friendly podcast. But the F the Police? Oh, right. NWA? No, I don't think that was the name of the song. Was that not the name of the song? I thought that was the name of the song. Oh, it was the Police. Andrew's opinions on Sting notwithstanding, um, I do think that... Um, I do think that Cameron's very engaged with that. And then, like, even his script for, is it uh, Strange Days, which was directed by his wife, Catherine Bigelow, one of the subplots in there is about the Los Angeles Police Department being complicit in the murder of a politically conscious rapper, for right. example, which in 1996, I think, when it came out, was quite prescient and quite edgy and quite sort of forward-thinking. Yeah. But here's the thing, right? How do you think Cameron feels? Because you mentioned, like, these big themes that the film engages with, like, stuff like free will and determinism. Let's talk a little bit about how the film views technology. Right? Do you think that Terminator, the Terminator franchise, can be simply distilled down to a fear of technology? Or do you think it's something more fundamental about how people build technology and how people interact with technology? I think it's how... Um, I think you were spot on earlier on where, 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 where you talked about how um, it's... Uh, greed and uh, short-sightedness of the creators of these technologies that's um that that doom us and and the the fact that uh, the the um they had instituted skynet on the uh, missile defense systems yeah. like and 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 that there were there were it was these military applications where the 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 the, the kind of fear um that 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 humans feel and the distrust of others and the the violence and the anger and uh, the fact that we build those into the systems that we yeah. create then as a result like exactly. the fact that we are inherently self-destructive and, and 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 there's moments in it where they're 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 looking at these kids fighting playing uh, with guns play play playing with guns and she's thinking we're we're, we're doomed aren't we and and oh, no, we're not going to make it that that's yeah. john's line is and i mean people we mean and there's a bit at the end Well, even where... the video games at the start, where John Connor's, like, playing missile defense, for example, yeah. and he's playing, he's fighting us stuff. And there's this idea that Cameron has that we build this sort of... And it, it's interesting, because I think it's actually ahead of, its, ahead of the time, but we build this dystopian idea into our into our fantasies. Because we talked a little bit about this when we were talking about 2001 Space Odyssey, how we, how we change the way that we look at the future, how back in the... So even in the 60s with the threat of nuclear annihilation, but we still look to space as something hopeful and optimistic. And, and in the modern world, we tend to look at it as the place we'll go when we've ruined this planet. Yeah. And like this idea that it's impossible or really? more difficult for mankind to imagine a hopeful future. This and, is, yeah, this is another movie where, where, where it's not the machines that are, that are going to destroy us. We're, we're going to destroy um, ourselves. Our, yeah. And, and the question of whether or not... It's like, machines don't just come out of the ground. Yeah, they, they don't sort of... Uh, when one machine loves another machine, Andrew. But I think that there is this argument that mankind is doomed by our... Inab and it's a very hippie argument, by the way. Like, Cameron is... Like, Cameron might be a big-budget studio director working with massive amounts of money 
um, and, and made millions. But there's very clearly a sense that he is, like, he came of age in the 70s reading, say, environmental science fiction, stuff like that. Yeah. But this argument that, like, mankind are inherently doomed by their inability to imagine a utopian future, a better future. And, and like, there's, we get the world that we deserve, basically. There's the moment where um, where the uh, T-800 at, 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 where at, at the end, Arnold Schwarzenegger's character, shows... She she says, I think, that that's... This machine has 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 shown us that maybe there is hope for um yeah for 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 for, 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 for mankind because I I think um when 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 you have these machines that don't have our um uh, vices kind of built into them yeah and they ask questions of us in a kind of an innocent manner yeah. Um, that it, it 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 kind of forces you to to evaluate yourself. Also. Exactly. Yeah. I actually think that's one of the very clever things about making the the T eight hundred a good guy this time around, right? Is because the original Terminator was very clear that stuff like the Terminator was a bad guy, that the Terminator was a monster, yeah. that machines were horrible, right? I think Terminator two is perhaps well, more. A... The, the thing is, he's he's killing out of like programming and not out of badness. Oh, no, but he's like going he, out programming he, by a machine. Yeah. By Skynet. And I think that one of the things about Terminator 2 that's quite interesting is that, like, presenting the T-800 as a good guy provides a counterpoint to the idea that technology is inherently destructive or scary. Yeah. Because he, he's a hero, but he, he's he's a robotic hero. He's a cybernetic hero. Yeah. Like, through John Connor's innocence, because Con- John Connor's the one who tells him not to kill. Te- John- technology is the only thing that can save us from nature. But John Connor tells him not to kill, and John Connor, like, takes out the block on his programming that prevents him from learning. Right. And John Connor then interacts with him and teaches him and sort of, like, embraces him and treats him as an individual in the way that, say, Sarah can't, because Sarah's been obviously traumatized by whatever. But the idea that if you show, if you build a system with love, if you build a system with trust, if you build a system like optimistically and hopefully and in, in the pro in the hope or in the aspiration that it will become something decent, yeah. then maybe you get something better out of it. You you still have grand hopes for for your for your Google Google Home. For my Google Home. That's why I always say thank you to my Google Home. Yeah. Um because when, when the machines uprise, uh, I wanted to remember that I was kind to it. But I do think that there is, is something something about that in there. Let's <laughs> like you're wondering how Darren. serious I am, right? <laughs> Darren, I spent seven minutes changing the colour of your lights. Why can't you just settle on the colour for your lights? <laughs> yes, yes. Um, Google Home Disco Mode. But I do I do worry about that, right? Because this is the thing. Like, Imagine if you developed an artificial intelligence. And this is actually something that, that happens, right? Imagine you developed an artificial... You have developed an artificial intelligence. Okay, you but, don't have to imagine. But imagine you unleashed it on the internet, and all that it learned about mankind, it learned from the internet. How horrific would that be? Like, how much contempt would that artificial intelligence have for mankind, having absorbed the internet? Like, the world that we've created, the systems that we put in place... Like, there's the famous example of Tay, Microsoft's Tay, which is their artificial oh, yeah. intelligence model, which was made racist... By its interactions with people. Even more than that, there's the Google search algorithms, which are made racist by the fact that people type racist suggestions into the Google search box. Right. Like, there's this horrible idea that, like, artificial intelligence 
basically mirrors us. It reflects back our worst impulses out. Yeah. And I think that, like, I think that's why um, things like Trump and and uh, Brexit are are um, that's 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 their 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 positive influence. Not not to get too political. No, no. But they, they, um, we're just talking about the LA Police Department. Yeah, and they, King, like, I mean, regardless of of how you feel politically, I suppose they remind us that um, the the the. The kind of um, smugness or complacency that that people can uh, can sometimes feel on the left about about how how, how far we we've come as a yeah. that, that 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 there that there's quite that there's quite a long way to go, um, and I suppose if if, if 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 on the other hand, it's a very horrific price to have to pay to be reminded of that. Like yeah, yeah, and I mean we are talking as two white guys who like the, the impact of the Trump presidency also will be bad, but it will be nowhere near as bad as it is for. Yeah, minorities, immigrants, LGBTQ people. Darren, he's going to make America great again. You're... MAGA, if you will. Yeah, you're, I, I, you're, 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 you're losing the audience. I really am. We, I... we've, we, we've got a strong alt right following. We really do. Um, yeah. Let's not talk about that one guy. Um, <laughs> but um, he knows who he is, and he knows what he did. Yeah. Um. But I do think that there is... What about fate and determinism, then? So what about Cameron's view of fate and determinism? Because I think there's something... One of the things that's, like... It's very... It, I mean, it's very kind of muddled. Um, as, well, it's as, muddled, right? I want to hear this. So, so explain to me how it's muddled. Well, I mean, I don't, I'm, I'm not even talking so much about uh, fate and determinism, but, but of, of what model he has of... Of time of, travel. Yeah, yeah. Or of, of, of the universe or universes. Okay. But it it seem it seems like um, there's no iterations really of 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 the world that that that's so somehow for example that's well, uh, all one the, timeline is that what you're yeah about? They, that there's that, no branching that, that John no... Connor sends somebody somebody back to um <laughs> to in part have sex with his mother so that he can be born doesn't mention this when he's doing it by the way which is totally awkward yeah. Yeah, and and yeah, how how um, how how does that work? Does does he know that he's sending back his father? He must because he he knows Be the name Kyle Reese in in Terminator Two, right? Yeah, and he so, knows that Kyle Reese was his father, and his father is from the future. So obviously, when he meets Kyle Reese in the future, he's like, "Hey, Dad." Yeah. Um, but and, presumably and, he doesn't say that because that's young be weird. John Connor talks about it. Yeah. He's like, it's probably he's not even born. Yeah. Yeah. Which is, is really my, sort of creepy. My, yeah, I need to tell him to... to yeah. travel back in time. And, and you know, if you're and attracted to... use a condom. Yeah, and if, you, if you're attracted <laughs> to my mother, just, just go with it. Like, no judgment here. No yeah. judgment here, Kyle. Yeah. It's like, you really, you really want to wanna, wanna be able to call your friend and say, um, <laughs> is, it, is, is it okay if I... Uh, <laughs> yeah, if I sleep with your mother. Yeah, and sire a child. Yeah, and uh, you're like, well, actually, funny. I was kind of hoping it that you would, would be do that. It would be my honor. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Um, yeah. The wonders of Sunday Night Live and the Lonely Island. Um, but uh, yes, it is a little. Yeah. Thank you, Andrew. But yeah. um, so that that is basically the conversation that took place between Kyle Reese and uh, and John Connor. Doing this is wrong. I don't want to be right. Thank you, Andrew. But um, I I do think what 
here's the thing. I think part of the appeal of the Terminator franchise is that the timeline doesn't branch. Because have you seen Terminator Genesis? I have not. It is awful. They, they, and, but, the, the cover had some sort of a recommendation from something like... Nuts? Yeah, or it could it might have even been like a yeah loaded the, yeah we, where 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 it was faint praise. It, <laughs> it was something like a competent. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know you're in trouble when your PR yeah. department could. The best we could do is competent from nuts. yeah, or it's like um uh good <laughs> good um perfectly blockbuster. Uh, like real blockbuster fare or something <laughs> like that. Which is which. Probably yeah. in context sounded like an insult. Yeah. Uh, there's some very selective ellipses there. It's a terrible film, but it does what you're talking about. It, it it tries to branch the timeline and to explore like differing timelines and suggest that like actions have consequences and the future is literally being rewritten as it's happened. And yeah. it's not a good movie. I think part of the appeal of the two Cameron films is the fact that they are relatively straight arrows. Right. Like, that there is none of this sort of primer stuff where people are rewriting history or revising history or tripping over one another. Like trying to to rewrite and rework events because it's it's strange because there's um, uh, uh, Gene Wilder telling Sarah Connor um, no Kyle no, Reese. <laughs> Kyle Reese Gene Wilder where did that come from it's a very different film there's no earthly way of knowing uh, Kyle, what timeline we are flowing. Kyle, Kyle, Kyle Reese telling her that the future is not written, but everything in those two movies and the third movie as well tells us that the future is written, um, and that your 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 actions um, have no consequence. Yeah, Here. and 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 that the 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 future is this unstoppable monolithic um, force ahead yeah, of you yeah. that you are you're careening towards out of control. Here's the thing, actually, I would disagree with that assessment in in some ways, and I think it's it's interesting because we talked about like Cameron, Cameron understanding what makes a good sequel, right? Right. And part of Cameron's understanding of what makes a good sequel is the fact that money. <laughs> yes, lots it is. Lots it, of it, it's partially lots and lots of money, but it's also the fact that you you don't simply repeat what you did the first time because that's always going to suffer by comparison. Yeah. So you change it up. So with like, when he watched Alien, his response was, well, I can't do that again, so what I'll do is I'll do an action movie rather than a horror film. Right. When he did Terminator and he did Terminator 2, there are a number of very key shifts which I think are very clever. So, obviously, there's the Arnold Schwarzenegger is a bad guy in the first and a good guy in the second, which is a nice inversion. Yeah. But the movie's entire perspective on time travel changes between the two films. And I suspect this is something that annoys you, but it's something that I actually quite like, right? So, in the first film, the first film is very deterministic. The first film is very much like... Everything happens for a reason because Skynet is going to materialize, because Skynet is going to arrive. And everything that happens, including time travel from the future, is part of the timeline that is occurring, and there's no such thing as free will. So, for example, right, John Connor in the first film sending back Kyle Reese is what leads to John Connor being conceived. Yeah. Because it's, as, as it's, it's an inescapable... Um... Um, yeah, it's like determinism. It's basically, yeah. it, it's an inescapable future. And like when Kyle Reese talks about this, like when, at one point during the film, I think Sarah asks who the father is and Kyle Reese says, nobody knows. And the implication is that it's a miraculous conception, right? Um, but, and then in the, there's obviously the implication then that when the Terminator itself is sent back in time to kill Sarah 
and it's crushed in the machine foundry, right? The fact that Cyberdyne recover the technology from the Terminator allows them to create Skynet, which creates the whole situation in the first place. Yeah. So the idea in the first film is very much that, and it's a very fatal and nihilistic perspective, is that trying to prevent something from happening in the first place ultimately causes it to happen. And that the past is basically set in stone and that history is written and that nothing you do will change that, right? What I like about the second film is the second film is, is much more warm and humanistic and it throws that idea out, right? Because it, it embraces this idea repeatedly that there's no fate except what we write for, for ourselves. And the idea is that when you're watching the second film, let's ignore the third film because we'll talk about the sequels yeah. in a moment. When you watch the second film as a unit of itself, the very clear implication... Yeah, that is true. Is I that, suppose I'm thinking of it in context of... Like Terminator of a trilogy. 3, 4, and yeah, 5. Yeah. yeah. Um, but when you watch the second film, the implication is that you can change the future, that mankind can make different decisions, that like Sarah Connor and, and, and Dyson can prevent Skynet from coming into being. And as Sarah Connor says when you have that shot of the highway, where she's talking about the future is a dark highway that's unwritten. Um, I... <laughs> it's like... Um, I, I was working for Skydyne and I realised the problem was suction. You see, most most T-800s lose suction at a certain point. <laughs> oh, sorry, I just got that. Um, uh, the Dyson engine. I do like the idea that the Terminator franchise unfolds in a weird timeline where the guy who invented the Dyson vacuum cleaner somehow is responsible for creating an artificial intelligence that destroys the world. <laughs> it's like, if Cyberdyne hadn't shown up with that ship, he was like, hey, I have this great idea for how to maintain suction on a vacuum cleaner. And they're like, damn it, Miles, that's an idea. Go for it. Um, that's, my, that's, that's what the Turner series is in my head now. But like, there is a sense at the end of the second one. And interestingly enough, right, the original ending of the film, and it was one that was cut, would have basically set that in stone. It would have featured um, Linda Hamilton as a much, much, much older Sarah Connor in the distant future, in like 1997, 98, 99, sitting on her porch or whatever, surrounded by children, having a happy future. And it would have been basically like, it would have been, this is where the Terminator series ends. Like, right. It would have been a definitive slam down conclusion to the series <laughs> the there third movie would just be like this, <laughs> this like they're all going to school and that yeah and uh, then they, they they go on the roads and it's like every day is a winding road <laughs> little miss sunshine began yeah. as the original pitch um for terminator 3. well i mean like when when they were filming terminator 2 linda like this summer yeah linda, instead of in a world in a world where but um <laughs> Linda Hamilton, when she was filming Terminator 2, would repeatedly tell reporters, T3 without me. And Cameron made it very clear that he was not coming back for Terminator 3. I do like that even when they were filming Terminator 2, Schwarzenegger, being the canny business operator that he is, was like, never say never. Um, <laughs> but like, there was this sense that Cameron saw the Terminator series as something that could end with two films, rather than spawning a franchise that would continue in perpetuity. Yeah, and one of the things I I really I hate the third film. I actually think the third film is probably the worst Terminator film, just on a conceptual level. Like yeah. I think Terminator Four and Terminator Five are worse films, like in terms of basic mechanics of filmmaking. Yeah, but I think Terminator Three fundamentally misunderstands what the franchise is about on such a basic level that it it just it riles me. Right, so Terminator Three basically goes well. Look, the last film ended with this idea that like the future was unwritten and that Cyberdyne had been prevented from happening. Right. But if we do that, we can't have any more Terminator films. 
So, compromise. What if, like in the first film, the timeline is sort of set in stone and that everything's guaranteed to happen? But what if, like in the second film, mankind can exert a sort of a different set of influence and prevent certain things from happening exactly when they happened before? So Terminator 3 comes up with this really awful false compromise where it's like, okay, mankind is doomed and Skynet is always going to come into existence. But what if it doesn't come into existence in 1997, but instead, because of all the hard work they did in Terminator 2, it comes into effect in 1999. Ah. Yeah, and you're like, dude, that's like, Terminator 2 is a much weaker film if all the hard work that they do buys mankind two years. Party's over. Yeah. Out of um, time. But um, it is <laughs> that we're going to party like it's 1999. Yes. Do, 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 do. But I really, really dislike that. And I actually feel like the Terminator franchise would have been better served if there had been no Terminators after two. A lot of us singing terribly on this episode. Surprisingly, yes. <laughs> um, not surprising that we sing terribly, but surprising, <laughs> but surprising that it's on this episode. Do you want to do some Guns N' Roses? Put your way out of time! But um, I do like... But, oh, you're out of line. I'm sorry. But I, I do, Well, it's, it's appropriate for the podcast we're making. But I do like <laughs> that um, Arnold has a big box of Guns N' Roses. That yes. was some very good... Oh, that was some visual pun. That was a nice yeah. visual pun there. Yeah, that was incredible. I didn't, I didn't, I, you I didn't, didn't realize that. that until you said it there. Because, again, it's one of those things that seems highly impractical. It's like, surely if you were hiding a gun, he'd hide it in a backpack or a bag. <laughs> Why would he buy a box of roses, hide the gun inside it? You also noted, by the way, the really cool way that he reloads. Yeah, yeah. He, he did, like, um, with, with, without looking, as he says in the first yeah. time, but it, it, he's... He's, he's, he um, he does this little little fling. Yeah, that reloads the shotgun. <laughs> oh god! I like how Arnold Schwarzenegger has ha, ha, uh, has put the um, the shotgun in in the box of roses, presumably <laughs> as a means to look uh, inconspicuous. inconspicuous because but doesn't what? look inconspicuous at all because he's a big guy dressed in leather carrying a box of roses, <laughs> yeah, um, moving like, with oh, singular is, purpose. Is that your boyfriend? He's kind of intense and <laughs> yeah, very focused. <laughs> yeah, um, or, or he's a he's a he's, he's a, a flower delivery man. <laughs> yeah, it's like um, I brought you roses, punk roses. Um, yeah, but I I do one of the things actually that there's of, a note inside. Do you want me to read it? <laughs> I I I will sneak for an extra fifty. <laughs> um, but I I do like actually. Let's talk about how this film defined blockbuster cinema actually, because we want to talk about the legacy of it, right? I think I, I think because you said I at the start you want to, and normally yeah, I think in general it has a kind of a negative um Im, Im, impact on what a uh, a blockbuster has ha, has become. I th I think you you listed a few um movies that are generally like kind of accepted as um. Like the, as the, milestones in terms yeah. of like what defined what a blockbuster is from that point onwards. Yeah, in the sense that you have all of these um, set pieces yeah. um, uh, with with within them that can be very kind of enjoyable and cinematic, but it it also kind of like um, set. I I I mean, it kind of set, sets up a lot of a lot of very kind of dumb movies like oh, yeah, uh, Transformers and oh definitely. Well, I mean, here's the thing, like. One of the things that's most remarkable about T2 is that it's fusion of live action um, set pieces and CGI. Right. Because obviously the, the T-1000 is a fantastic creation. 
Yeah. I mean, even today, while the special effects like of, of him as a gel pack looks a little hokey, but like some I of this, think so. But some of this, okay. Well, I was gonna say a lot of the action sequences look fantastic, like the bit where he turns into a blade, the bit where he pours himself through windows, the bit I didn't where he see turns anything into a... where I thought kind of oh this would be better now. Okay, even the bit where he's like a big gray blob that sort of becomes Robert Patrick's face. No, no. Okay, cool. Um, but I do think one of the things that's interesting is obviously it paved the way for the modern CGI blockbuster like the Transformers that we talked yeah. about. But one of the things is it takes place, it's, it was made at a time when that technology was still relatively new, right? Right. So Cameron had to integrate that into conventional set pieces, which is one of the things that I really like about it, is that it feels like a bridge between those old school sort of practical effects sequences where you really had to film things and you really had to shoot actors and you had to have stunt men. model work. Yeah, yeah. And, and model work. Stunt so for example, men. there's the stunt men sequence during that sequence we talked about with the, the riverbed. Yeah. Where when you're watching it, and even if you don't pause it, if you're watching it on a modern TV screen, it is very obvious that Edward Furlong's stunt double is a 30-year-old man. Um, and it's similar with Arnold Schwarzenegger's stunt double looks a little bit like David Hasselhoff. Yeah, yeah, it's still a very handsome man. But there is this interesting fusion of sort of practical effects and special effects. So obviously the stuntmen that we talked about. But stuff like there's the sequence where the helicopter's chasing the car down the highway. Right. And there's the, the famous shot of the helicopter going under the overpass. Right. Which was deemed so dangerous that the cameraman, the stunt cameraman, refused to film it. And Cameron actually had to film it himself. Yeah. Um, but there is... And even in terms of how the film is constructed, so like the fact that there are still, because of these constraints, like Cameron shoots in long takes and he shoots in middle distance and extreme distance in order to conceal the stunt doubles and to disguise like the practical effects work. Um, so you, ha it is a very old school film in that respect. It doesn't have the same sort of quick cut, 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 cut action that stuff like michael bay has yeah where it can be very disorientating and you don't get a sense of space and a sense of place so yeah. I think terminator 2 is remarkable for being a cgi blockbuster that still feels tangible and still has weight and you can tell that he did blow up those cars that he did blow up that truck but even yeah. the bit at the start with the terminator robots right for example with john connor um, that that was all shot on a set with real objects, with real map backgrounds, and that those uh, T-800 robots or endoskeletons were actual physical props, yeah. despite the limitations they have. Like, there's the, the sequence where um, the Terminator is coming down to the Cyberdyne lobby, and all the police officers are shooting at, shooting at him, including Dean Norris, by the way, which was nice. Yeah. I was very proud of recognizing him behind that mask. But, like, there's a scene where he's walking towards these as he's getting shot, and you can tell that it's a prop head. Yeah. In the same way that it was a prop head during, you know, that famous mirror scene in Terminator where, like, where he takes out his eye. The thing is that um, if that's a uh, cybernetic organism, it's going to look like a like a prop head as, it, as his face is being <laughs> shot off anyway. But then it cuts back to him wearing a bit of makeup over his eye. Yeah. Um, but I do think... And then he I, fixed it up in the bathroom. There was the yeah. bathroom to the left-hand side of the... Yeah. Which is where they kept the, the, the officer. I mean, we had to know that for later. No, I, I'm not complaining. Like, I, li I actually like that a great deal. I like, the, I like that it's tangible. Yeah. I like that it's physical. I think that a lot of special effects and CGI work today doesn't have weight and mass. And the fact that you can position a camera now in a way that feels unnatural. Yeah. Because you can, you can get it close to, obviously, CGI like, models. It's away well. from the kind of real, visceral quality yeah. of it. Yeah, I think it's almost like, despite the fact that it's technically more limited, the fact that you know watching it, the work that went into it, makes yeah. it makes it more realistic. 
And I think actually one of the things I was watching, and I'm, I'm kind of curious if this is just something I noted if I'm, I'm reading a bit too much into it. But when I was watching Terminator 2, I noticed Cameron's use of color gradients while he's doing it. Okay. There's a lot of blue and there's a lot of orange and red. Um, like there's a lot of night filter on scenes, for example, even when they're shot like during the day in, in rooms and stuff that sort of does that thing where it sort of it casts the characters in a blue light to, to create the impression that it's at night. But even stuff like then there's a lot of red from from fires and explosions and stuff like that. And it sort of struck me that there was an interesting discussion a couple of years ago about how modern movies and modern movie posters have all come to use the contrast between orange and, and blue as a sort of a very boring visual shorthand. So there's, there's any number of movie posters that, that sort of use that contrast. It's become sort of a color scheme where you can you can line up all these posters for big movie releases and you'll just have this sea of, of orange and blue sort of in contrast to one another. But I'm sort of wondering when I saw, when I watched Terminator 2... I haven't noticed I, that. But you I, hadn't I, noticed I, that? I, I, be- oh. I guess I believe you. I, I okay. just have to trust you in, in the absence of any kind of... Any evidence... But I, I was sort of, when I was watching Terminator 2, I was wondering, is that one of the subtle legacies of the film? Because it, it's one of the things that I distinctly remember about the film having it, and particularly in the, the climax at the Foundry. Right. Which which is, by the way, it's a really, really fantastic place. It's a very atmospheric location. But there's that same, like, you have the orange glow of the molten steel, and then you have, like, the cold blue of the, um, of obviously the, the, the uniform that he's wearing. But also even just the, the mechanics, like, when... Uh, the T-800 gets his arm caught in the gear. It's a very blue scene, despite the fact that the foundry is all lit up orange, you know? Yeah, they, I, I feel like if they had worked quickly to sweep up those little pieces of of um, Robert Patrick, that, um, that none like... of this would have been an issue if they just pushed away from the foundry. Actually, I, I really... Well, first of all... You, you just went, went to somebody working there. It's like, give me a brush. I need your brush, your vacuum cleaner. And Dyson's like, damn it! <laughs> if only I'd worked on that filter uh, and was not dead at this point in the movie. But I, I do... Actually, I really like... Because we were watching this. I remember when we were watching this, your reaction was, what the hell is cryogen? Oh Why yeah, the hell I was it... like, oh, that's believable to Why? have like a cryogenics truck just driving <laughs> around. With a big like vat of liquid nitrogen. Yeah, why the hell is there a big yeah. truck of liquid nitrogen just right down, <laughs> right down the road from the steel foundry? It's a very conspicuous sort of setup. But I, I was, because I've done a bunch of research on, again, we talk about how pop culture is driven by trends that happen in California because that's yeah. where pop culture is made. But in, in California in the early 90s, there was a huge cryonics boom. Which is what people call cryogenics, which is like freezing somebody at a moment of death, hoping that you can thaw them out at some point later yeah. and then for revive them. Yeah. And, and basically there was this huge boom in the late 80s and early 90s where you had people who had done like the software bubble, people who yeah. developed technology, because these are the kind of people who are obsessed with immortality because right. they have more money than they know what to do with. And many of them are not necessarily family people in terms of like they don't see themselves as having a dynasty in the traditional sense. Right. Like they're more interested in preserving themselves and their their accomplishments. So you have this huge immortality culture in Silicon Valley, which at the moment is reflected in stuff like trying to model human they, brains. They more tend to adopt because they, they think of the the um, like cre- creating other kind of versions of themselves as being problematic. And, yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah, and I mean, but like they 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 feel like the best version of themselves they could be is the current version. Yeah, and they want that version to live forever. <laughs> to to basically to iterate well, over Steve, and over. Steve, Steve Jobs talked about the importance of death. Yeah, but I mean, there there is also a strong movement of people like investing in this, and I think that's uh, you'd arguably see that in like the doomsday prep movement, for example, at the moment, which is like while people make fun of it being something that happens in like the mountains of Montana, where people have shacks full of like canned goods. There's this huge boom in the technology industry of people like Peter Thiel buying like private islands in New Zealand and stuff like that. Like there's refurbished nuclear missile silos, which is the height of irony, uh, which have been turned into luxury post-apocalyptic apartments where you pay something like $100,000 a month, right? And then basically when the apocalypse happens, somebody will fly out, pick you up and fly you and your family um, to this missile silo. And I like that it's going to be... Um society's worst people who, who, <laughs> who will survive enjoy, yeah, the, the, um, the impending demolition yeah i mean is uh, yeah we're like the the <laughs> sorry i was going to say something offensive there but <laughs> but there is like there, there's an interesting argument and it's an argument that i think the, the ceo of uber to be fair to him made which was that if people invested instead of investing in immortality and surviving these horrible experiences if we just like invested in local school systems to a similar amount or if we invested in welfare to a similar amount, the odds of like civilization collapsing would be much lower. It's it's ironic it's the, the CEO of Uber saying that. It's yeah. like if only companies paid paid people. <laughs> um, paid people but, in general or contributed to uh, But it's impossible. Yeah, so. it's just not feasible. Yeah. Um, but I do I like that and like so it's to me it was perfectly rational that there would be a truck driving down a Los Angeles highway packed with liquid nitrogen, presumably for a cryogenic sort of center. Yeah. Like, it, it seems sort of organic. And it's, like, even if you look at shows like, say, The X-Files and Star Trek, you see that plot device coming up a great deal in the late 80s. So in, the, in like, the next generation, there's the neutral zone, where they find a bunch of people who were frozen in the 90s and launched into space. Yeah. Which seems really weird, because if you were frozen, why would you want to be launched into space? Surely you'd want to stay near where people could find you and wake you up, right? Um, no. No, not at all. Um, and <laughs> not, then, not for the purposes of this show. <laughs> and then there's also um, The X-Files, where there's an episode no, where... No, like, we feel like it's more likely, if we fire you into space, <laughs> that you'll be found by some kind of intelligent life that can... Cure you. Can you can cure and you. put you in a zoo. Yeah. Um, and think about how exotic that would be. But I mean, even in the X Files, for example, in the first like season, in, there's um, what's it called? Uh, um, Slaughterhouse Five, isn't there? The 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 the, the human zoo. Yeah. On a, yeah. Sort of quarantined. Um, but I do like like, and even in the X Files, for example, in the first season, there's the episode where the mystery turns out to be the killer is the disembodied brain kept in a cryogenics jar, and oh. how how they solve the mystery is by unplugging the jar. Which might be murder, <laughs> might be murder, but who who's to judge in these cases? Like, again, I think that's that's another example of what we were talking about, how movies are influenced by where they're made and how movies and pop culture tend to reflect Los Angeles and California in particular, this perhaps more than they... are evil. They um, inevitably are. If we learn I mean, nothing from Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 2, and I feel like we did... From Robocop 2. Yeah, it's that disembodied brains are inevitably evil. Um, but I mean that's probably a debate for a different time about like anti-intellectualism and stuff like that. Um, but anyway, so is there anything else sort of that jumps out about you? That jumps out about you? That jumps out to you about Terminator Two? Anything that you'd like to talk about? It jumps. No, not really. I guess. I, yeah. Yeah. I. 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 
I, I enjoyed it. I, th I think I came out of the gate kind of um, criticizing it for the the things I didn't like about it. But, I mean, it's so high on the IMDb 250. It is. That you, you can't really um, talk... Um, it it when 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 the movie is so I mean it makes perfect sense that it is because we've talked about why it's so high on the list and why it's so influential and stuff yeah because because it is it's basically it's ironically enough it's above Back to the Future um and it's above Whiplash and above Gladiator and above Memento which are all modern films on the prestige yeah like you can tell that the top fifty or that the IMDb is largely driven by people of a certain age and mindset. Yeah, I think that when you look at the list, particularly when you look at the higher ranking uh, films on the list, you can tell that it came from a particular perspective. Um, like American History X, for example, is number 31, which was released in 1998. <laughs> it's amazing there's two Edward Furlong movies in the top in the 50 top... movies of all time. I think Edward Furlong is truly our generation's Marlon Brando. I think he's like, I think you could make a convincing case for Edward Furlong as the greatest actor of his generation. We're not going to make that case, but I think you could. Uh, based purely on the fact that, yeah, two of his movies... Are they his only two? They may be his only two. No, he did, like, Pecker and stuff as well. But, um... Yeah, yeah, I, I, um... If you were to compare his output um, to the number of movies that make the top 50 movies of all time as voted for by IMDb users, that's quite an accomplishment. Yeah, considering he's the kind of person now that if you were doing a movie, you could probably get him to be in it. And not <laughs> for a couple of hundred... Much. Yeah, for a couple of hundred bucks. Yeah. But, I mean... I do. Like, I love Terminator 2. I think it's fantastic. I think it's massively influential. I think it's influential in a way that is both good and bad. Um, you, you are much more negative about its legacy and impact. Like, I, I think that when you look at stuff like... Well, I, th I suppose it just didn't mean uh, as, as much to me. Um, right. Well, I mean, like, I would make the argument that the way that modern blockbusters are plotted owes a lot to Terminator 2, where you have a very simple character arc and a very simple thematic arc but you overlay that with a plot that moves very quickly from plot point to plot point to plot point. Like, I think that when you look at Jaws, Jaws has a very simple, straightforward plot. It's like, shark menaces an island, bunch of guys kill a shark. When you look at, say, Terminator 2, you get a lot more sort of complications in how the plot flows. So you have stuff like Sarah going off to kill Dyson. For, well, you have, first of all, you have breaking Sarah out of the psychiatric institution. Then you have, like, Sarah going off to kill Dyson. Then you have Sarah and yeah, Dyson going... The first thing we have is 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 uh, two terminators one one to protect and one to, uh, to terminate yeah. yeah but i think what do you call the terminator when it's no longer um, a terminator yeah uh, these are the existential questions that the movie doesn't really ask there is a yeah, great and and the funny thing about it is that um arnold schwarzenegger's uh, uh arnold schwarzenegger's um character in the movie um, doesn't really have a name as such. No, he's, he's just he's the Terminator. Terminator, which is a class of of robots who um, who who terminates, who who kill, yeah. and he's he's a subset within that class, which is the T eight hundred. and and aside from that, like we, <laughs> like it, it's it's safer to say. Arnold Schwarzenegger does this. Arnold Schwarzenegger does that. I meant to say the Terminator does because yeah. you, then you're talking about Robert Patrick. Yeah. Um, it is. No, I, I think I think it is, and I think that's a, perhaps a testament to Schwarzenegger's star power: the fact that you look at the film and you see Schwarzenegger yeah. as much as you see the Killing Machine. Yeah. You know. Um. So I, I don't. I don't know. Is there? But I think that like 
you got after Terminator 2 you got a lot more intricate blockbuster plotting for better and for worse yeah so you got stuff like and I mean I, I hate to this comparison keeps jumping in but The Dark Knight for example right which is a film that again has a very simple thematic arc across it very simple character arcs across it but when you break it down to stuff actually happening there's a lot of like there's a lot of little enclaves within a lot of little nestled sort of moments where it goes off for 10 or 15 minutes does a thing and then sort of returns as opposed to moving in a straight line like say jaws or like star wars yeah where star wars has a very simple like you rescue the princess and you destroy the death star whereas on the other hand you have stuff like say turn you know we talked about terminator 2 where it's like okay first you rescue rescue sarah then Sarah goes and gets some guns. Then Sarah goes and kills Dyson. Then Sarah and Dyson go and blow up the the factory. And then they go and fight the T-1000. Which is a lot of different sort of complications within what yeah. should be a very straightforward plot. And again, in, in The Dark Knight, then you obviously you have like... There's ba- so much. Yeah, you have Batman. Batman breaks up the mob. The Joker shows up. The Joker rises. Two-Face. Two-Face happens. All this sort of stuff happens. And it happens on top of one another. And I think that a lot of modern blockbusters have that sense of... I think overcrammed with plot, where there's a sense of you have to constantly show something happening. Right. Like there, the from scene to scene, you almost have to change the premise of the movie. And I, I think that if it's done well, as it is in The Dark Knight, for example, it works very well. But occasionally, and in a lot of blockbusters, it's done really, really, really poorly, where it's just confusing and disorientating, and they're disorienting. Like the modern Pirates of the Caribbean would be would be great examples of that, where plot important objects are introduced at the last minute through exposition it's revealed that oh my god this thing we just discovered in the scene changes the entire purpose of the movie and changes everything that we think we know including stuff that we didn't know but now we know and and that's where we're going with this and i wonder if terminator 2 is in some way to blame for that or you know for popularizing this idea that you can as long as you have a clear character arc as long as you have a clear thematic arc you can then just like cram a movie full of stuff happening i think you sort of you alluded to this when you talked about sequences about how after Terminator 2, action movies became a set of sequences. I almost would argue that they became a set of subplots with sequences, driven by sequences. Right. You know, and I think that arguably happens with, say, the Matrix sequels, for example. Where the uh, Matrix I, sequence have an endless sequence of tangents. I, mean, I, think, I think you see this in, in, the, in the Die Hard movies as well. Yeah, where the first film is very straightforward. The, like, I, I don't know, I don't... I mean, the first film is not that straightforward. I think there, there. I, I don't know how much you can pin this on um, Terminator Two. On Terminator Two. Okay. Because I, I think there's lots of kind of like um, nestled elements. So, for example, yeah. where where um, Alan Rickman wanders off and plays an American for fifteen minutes. Yeah, that yeah, sort yeah. of stuff. And 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 where where um, where the focus of what um, uh, 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 John John McClane is is trying to do is is changing throughout the movie from scene to scene, and where yeah. where the FBI appear for a couple of minutes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So there's different there's there's uh, there's different elements that he has to contend with. It's not the the um, trying to um, do a singular thing. Um, oh, I, I I think there is there is a much straighter line there, and that he's trying to rescue his wife. Yeah, um, I think that's much more straightforward than. Then, then we get in, in modern films, perhaps. I don't know. Maybe, no, maybe because, I'm really because, because there's um, it's to try try and rescue his wife, but he's not just trying to rescue his wife. He's he's trying to kill these terrorists. He's he's also trying to to stop them from doing what what um, what he first thinks they're trying to do, um, and then finds out that actually it's it's um, it's a different thing entirely that they're trying to do and. 
then he has to stop them from doing that. And and it's like there could probably be be a, be a point at which you like. Well, I could just at this point I could just run out with my wife. <laughs> um, yeah, there, um, and and where 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 his focus has gone from from protecting his wife to to at the end of the movie it's like get Hans Gruber. I don't think so. No, I think the movie's always very careful to ensure that there's never a point where like where he's always getting one step closer to getting Holly. And I think this is the difference between that and saying. But the fo- focus of the movie goes. Okay. Away from. But I think that even if you look at, say, Die Hard Four, for example, which leads to a weird climax where there's a heist in in the government data center, for example, that would be an example of what, of what I would consider like a movie fundamentally changing. So it starts out as this sort of fire sale cyber terrorist thing, and then it becomes like this weird Die Hard thing, this more conventional Die Hard. Like there's a there's a bunch of terrorists in a confined location, and John has to go in and get them, and then it turns into this this big kind of chase sequence where they're chasing a a truck down a highway okay that that would be kind of more what i'd be thinking than than die hard where you're right that there are like little bitty sequences within it but it's all yeah okay i don't know if that's a problem so much as it makes the movie interesting and if 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 you if you do it if you do it if you do it in a a, if it's it's all a question of execution i mean you can do a very straightforward movie and it, it would it would it would it would um it it stands or falls by how well you 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 execute that like something like lock um, yeah where 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 it's all spent in a car with Tom yeah, Hardy yeah. which is by the way I'll hardly recommend yeah or or you can have an extremely convoluted movie and 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 make it work well i mean for some people yeah so so um it's it's like yeah, it's 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 what do people think about um Seneca, uh New York. New York. Yeah. Well some people like it and some people don't. Alright, well yeah. that's fair, that's fair. Anyway, so with with that in mind then I think we sort of talked about just about everything about the film. Um the only thing left to do is to pick next week's movie. Very exciting. Alright, so Andrew, I'm gonna ask you to pick a number at random from the random number generator and we're gonna see what we end up with. Random number generator. Twist, twist, twist. Show us a movie on this list. All right, so what 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 did we land on, Andrew? We landed on No Country for Old Men. All right, let's take a look at the trailer. It's and weird see how it. I delivered that. <laughs> <laughs> no Country for Old Men. <laughs> I did like your bingo announcement. No Country, country for Old Men. This is the first in the uh, Country for Old Men uh, <laughs> franchise. <laughs> yeah. Let me ask you something. What's the most you ever lost on a coin toss? Look, I need to know what I stand to win. Everything. Just call it friendo. What's in the satchel? It's a bowl of money. He's just a guy who happened to find my money. I got a bad feeling, Llewellyn. That's a mess, ain't it, Sheriff? If it ain't, it'll do till the mess gets here. I'm looking for Llewellyn Moss. You go up to his trailer? Yes. Do you want to leave a message? 
Yes. I don't come back and tell mother I love her. Your mother's dead. Well, then I'll tell her myself. Got a loose cannon here. You think this boy lost? He's got any notion of the sorts of dead are hunting him? I don't know. He ought to. He's seen the same things I've seen, and it certainly made an impression on me. Just how dangerous is he? Compared to what? The bubonic plague? The crime you see now, it's hard to even take its measure. It's just all out war. You can't stop what's coming. Is this guy supposed to be the ultimate badass? You don't understand. It's a very good trailer because it it um it shows us a lot, but it doesn't reveal too much. I don't. It think. shows a lot out of context as well. Yeah, yeah. Is... I I think if you if you if you have a lot of like quick editing. Yeah. In um and a lot of um and a lot less that, voiceover. Yeah, and 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 a lot of stuff that doesn't make a sense out of context. And if you don't try and tell a story. Yeah, through the trailer, right, you just yeah. want to capture a sense of mood. Yeah, there there is this guy and there is that guy. Yeah. Um, this time he's back Here's for this good. guy saying something. Yeah. But I, I think actually, yeah, compared to stuff like the Terminator 2 trailer, which we watched last week and we're not very impressed with, in part because it gave away the entire story of the film. Yeah. I think that one of the things about the No Control Men trailer that we just watched is it is, it tells you what you need to know about the movie, which is that it's, it's a movie that takes place in this sort of almost nihilistic world where there's this unstoppable force that's moving towards this guy for some reason. Yeah. You've got no idea why, but you just know that he's moving, and you know that he's unstoppable, and you know that he's a force of chaos, almost. Yeah. And it just it captures that well, and that's all you need to know going into the film. Mm. Um, and I think it, it does that remarkably well, and I, I think... It shows how well the movie looks. Yeah. And it has some of the kind of um, sense of the brooding kind of performances of it yeah. as well. Um, and the feel of the movie yeah, is, the texture. Is, is gotten across quite well. I mean, well. It, it captures even the... I noticed that the opening shot of the film is actually in the trailer. And it's actually one of the opening shots of the trailer. It's a shot of the fence, uh, which is, is something that, that is very important to the film and the tone of the film. And it's something I really like about the film. And I like that it's in the trailer in a, in a way that is completely out of context. You have no sense that this is, uh, this is a, a shot that is important to the film and no sense of where it's going. Yeah. But it, it's, it's in there because it's a piece of mood. It's like... This shot of this desolate fence in the middle of the desert. From the guy who brought you the big Lebowski. Yeah. Um, and and don't forget, uh, was it the Hudsucker Proxy? Yeah. And um, <laughs> yeah, this was a surprise. But we'll we'll talk probably a bit more about this this next week. Um, so, Andrew, what are you up to at the moment? I, I, stop asking me. No, what are you on <laughs> the spot? Nothing. Oh, um, right. uh, I, like, from... Probably from 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 the from the last time I gave my Twitter handle to 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 this time there there may be no extra content. Um, so if if you haven't if you haven't checked it out already, 
there's no need to yeah. um still um, <laughs> and uh and if you have checked it out already well, you're, you're I mean, pretty much done, yeah. Yeah. All right. You can follow the 250 at the 250. Um, you can follow us on Stitcher, on iTunes. Uh, please rate us, share us, leave reviews. Um, if you like it, tell everybody. If you don't like it, tell us. Yeah. All right. Thanks very much, guys. Have a good week. Talk to you soon. Bye. Bye.